talking Tesla. Talking Tesla. Tesla. I'm not sure if like my foot should be on the brake or the accelerator. Because they put rings on Elon. It must be some sort of geometrical algorithm. Are you ready now? Oh, I'm sure there's some math. Tom? <laughs> Robert? Yeah. Well, all right, fellas. Well, let's go! How am I expected to drive a car without autopilot? So, here's the deal. You know, I'm not a good parker, Tom. Yeah. I'll be the first to admit it. Yeah. I just think that this is a car company that is run by super Auto geeks. Is All the other cars are going to be stupid cars compared to this car. Tesla. You don't even have Tesla. Tesla. I remember that. You've got a Model X. I've seen the future, and it is light pole charging. No, I wouldn't call it a screw-up. Do you like your Model X? God, it's beautiful. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it's Talking Tesla 69, and uh, where's Tom? Tom, if you don't, where? where's Tom? I'm not in the studio, that's for sure. Is this, like, become Where's Waldo? Am I wearing a striped sweater at the moment? No, I am in beautiful Chicago, Illinois. It's raining today. I'm visiting my family once again. I'm staying in another part of Chicago in Old Town. Thank you very much to my cousin for letting me use her apartment while she's becoming a international superstar in New York. Really? Now, is there snow on the ground? What's happening in the Chicago's? No, what I will tell you about Chicago is it is now January 16th. There is not one inch of snow on the ground. And they've only gotten about eight inches of snow all year. It's currently raining. I was out walking in the rain looking for the rarest cable in the history of computing, the mini USB cable, which is uh, if you have a bunch of devices that need these things and don't have a drawer full of them, uh, you should start cornering the market on them because they won't be around much longer, I have a feeling. Everybody's going to USB-C, the and micro C USB and micro USB. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, um, we have to ask Robert what he did this weekend. What did you do this weekend, Robert? Oh my God, this weekend was an exciting weekend. So I got up really early, not as early as I would get up to go to work, but it was like five in the morning. Oh my word! Yeah, and so uh, met up with uh, a talking Tesla fan, Robert. And uh, we drove out to Lompoc, which is actually a really nice community. I've been there a couple of times, a lot of, a lot of farming, a lot of farms. But what's more important is it was a very flat surface on which airplanes land, yes. also known as an airport. Yes. And on that airport was <laughs> a group of like, at I guess the peak, probably 700 SpaceX employees and fans yes, all watching across the airport as a Falcon 9 rocket rose up with this huge flame. I did some recording. I think you have those. Yeah, we're going to plug those in. And the rocket just went up and, and it was silent. The whole group was silent. It was, I, I thought it was disappointing. I thought, wow, it's really quiet. And we had talked already about how far we were. We were about like, I thought it was about six miles from the launch site. Somebody said maybe 10. And then it it dawned on me in this moment of like lapse of of intelligence as I was in awe watching this rocket climb that sound has a limit to how fast it can travel. There is a uh, speed limit to sound. Yes. And so it can take a little while for the sound to reach you. But then when the sound started reaching me. Oh, yeah. I felt it all the way through. And I actually was sort of speechless. I think I was making a recording and I was saying something and then I just stopped because I was just watching this rocket go up. And if you look at the size of a Falcon 9, it's a pretty large rocket. The flame shooting out the back of it is about two thirds as long. 
huge flame. And the flame gets shorter as it goes higher, but it was a perfectly cloudless day, and you could see this whole arc of the rocket going up. You could see when the first stage cut out, and you could even see, I think, the separation, but it started getting beyond my my ability to see, but it felt great. It was an awesome couple of minutes, and I drove two and a half hours each way to see that, which I, I have a a little bit of self-judgment in that. Lift off. I can see the rocket climbing. I can see the body of the rocket. The flame coming off the bottom. The smoke is coming up. Standing here with 500, maybe 700 people. From SpaceX. I um I did this with my family last time they went from Vandenberg Air Force Base, and we drove up there and we couldn't see anything. It was so foggy we couldn't see anything, not even really a glow. But the noise was unbelievable. And in fact, I was kind of freaked out because you can't see and there's this noise that's rattling your entire body. And I'm like. It's going to explode. It's going to kill us all. It's going to kill us all. But you had the perfect day. It was raining, raining, raining all week. Then it was a perfectly clear day. The visibility must have been 100 miles. In fact, it was 100 miles because I was 100 miles away in Santa Monica. My son was having a uh, cross-country meet, but I knew the the rocket was going to go up. So I started my little uh, phone and I started watching the countdown and I stood in the middle of the track and I said to everybody, look that way. And uh, we looked, and we actually saw the rocket. Now, we didn't see the rocket, but you could see the flame going up and up and up and up, right. and then only for you know five or ten seconds, and yes. then it disappeared. But it was pretty effing awesome, and I was amazed how nobody at that place knew that there was going to be a launch today. Yeah. I'm like, Isn't that amazing? This is like my whole life is, is about these things, and all the people are like, what do you mean there's a rocket going off from Vandenberg? Right. What's rocket Vandenberg? What? Yeah. <laughs> like, what? My son was with his cycling club, and they were doing some, uh, I don't know, some training or some sort of workout in Torrance. And one of the guys on the club actually works at SpaceX, and he was all bummed, evidently, that he couldn't go to Lompoc to watch the launch. So they're all cycling, and at one point, and my son knew about this because he listens to me talk about Tesla and SpaceX and Hyperloop. Ad nauseum, he wishes I would just shut sure. up. <laughs> and so uh, he, they all go to a corner. This guy's like scoped out a corner. What's the corner to stand on so you can see between buildings and where the launch will be? And they all go over there. And sure enough, they saw the launch from Torrance as well, but didn't get to experience quite as much of the launch. And the cool thing was to be there with all these people who work on the rocket mm-hmm. and listen to what they had to say. And and things like uh, they typically have like a 120% confidence rating. That's their goal for just about every launch. But on this launch, the confidence rating was quite a bit higher. I Nobody would give a number, but I got the sense that it was at least 200% because you don't want to have this launch go down as a failure. And that would really kind of put a crimp because their plans are to do 20 launches this year. Now, when you say a 200% confidence limit, like, does that just mean they've tested and tested and tested and tested and tested because this, if this goes up there, they're going to be big trouble? Yeah, and you do a lot of this on computer. So this is a lot of extra hours, a lot of 
person power. And there were a lot of people there. There was uh, one per- – I, I don't want to be calling anybody out, but just general observances. is one person I saw who was like in charge of a large group of people basically did not sleep. And I think a lot of people had a hard time sleeping before this launch. I, I even met – so you want to know how many people really support this and went out there? I met the SpaceX barista. Oh my god! Even the barista, the barista went out there. I was like, "Oh, what do you do?" Well, this one guy says, "I, I'm the comms guy," and he's like, "I'm saying, great job, man. The cameras didn't go out on the barge, you know." And yeah. he's like, "Well, I don't really do those, but there were so many people there, and there are so many jobs, and to coordinate all of that, wow, hats off." You sent some really uh, fun little Twitter pictures and stuff, and it looked like a huge group of people, so it was very cool. So they did it, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. If you don't know. I don't know how you wouldn't know, but they did it. They fired up the rocket. It did not explode. The first stage came back to Earth, and I'd got to say I've watched them all. This was by far the best camera angle on a clear day. The cameras didn't go out. And you see as this rocket is coming down into the ocean, what's that little postage stamp down there? Then the postage stamp gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and they stick the landing, and I wet myself in front of hundreds of small children at uh, the (laughs) cross-country meet. It was upsetting. That's not true, right? part that last part that last part is not true i can't uh, i can't back that up but i was excited wrong i watched it in chicago with my cousin who is of the age that she remembers watching the apollo launches and all that other stuff on and uh, so she was very excited and we watched the, the landing and i was explaining it to her the whole way and she thought that was very very cool so yeah it was uh, uh, it was, it was awesome it to was... be able to sort of share that with her now, uh, Tom, you want to talk to us about um, your retirement plan, and uh, that has no, something to do with, with Tesla stock. Today's Tesla stock price, because it's a holiday, no one's selling stock today, is uh, $237.75. That's up a little over 8 bucks from the last time, uh, from, from Friday, or no, from Thursday, I guess, because that would be Friday's closed. And That's like a little 6%. history lesson. A little history lesson. I love history, Tom. Come on. So on June 10th, on June 29th in 2010, Tesla launched its IPO. Did you guys know that? That's its initial public offering of stock to raise some money. And then what's good about that, it's not really public at all, but go on. That's uh, (laughs) That's true. (laughs) It's 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 insidery public. public, Insidery public option. $17. A share at that point, and they raised two hundred twenty-six million dollars. Oh, and Toyota, cute. just a few days before that, had given Tesla fifty million dollars, and that investment is now worth seven hundred million dollars. So, as long as Toyota didn't sell their stock, they did. They, they are did. looking yeah. pretty good. They still did oh. very well. Thank you very much. They sold it when it was still pretty high, and they made a nice return on that. So, ladies yeah. and gentlemen, boys and girls. Um, if we could go back in time, if we could break through the various uh, systems that are in place so that there's nothing public about an initial public offering and bought a lot of stock, we could have done quite well. You've got a, like a 10x done. return already. Nice. In six years. Not pretty, bad. Pretty, pretty yeah. sweet. And uh, so Panasonic oh. has made an investment, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately. They talk about Panasonic investing in the Gigafactory, 1.6, 1.9, up to $2 billion. But what does that really mean? Do we have any real idea? Do you guys have any idea? Because I couldn't find any information on did they get stock? Did they just get 
a percentage of the open market? Are they just guaranteeing them the sales of the batteries that are being built? So that was that's an interesting sort of question I have for you guys and for Tesla Nation. Well, I remember when I went through the Gigafactory, this was during the summer, one of the entire buildings. So at that time, there were three completed buildings. They had a fourth building that was being attached one of the three buildings was the Panasonic building. And in that building, Panasonic was creating the infrastructure for building the batteries. So I imagine it's more of the same. Instead of just one of the buildings now, they're putting stuff into four of the buildings, you know, so because they're the pretty much the battery supplier. So I imagine that it has a lot to do with their their investment in the, the actual creation apparatus. I'm sure it's a complex series of you've got a piece of uh, Tesla, a certain percent, they've got some stock in return for Panasonic's cash, and they're also going to make batteries for Panasonic, whatever it wants to do. So uh, Tesla Nation, answer the question. We don't know. Tom doesn't know. What is the actual deal? Because I think Panasonic put up the majority of the $5 billion it's going to make uh, cost to create this gigafactory. So they must have well, got it depends. a pretty if good it's deal. Four, right? If it's $4 billion when they... You, then they've put up a little less than half. If it's five billion, obviously it's a little less than two fifths. However, you want to sort of break that down. Uh, so, but the real question is like, is it a loan? Is it a corporate bond? Is it just like a guarantee of sales? And Tesla still paying Panasonic for the battery? Panasonic turns out gigantic company. They're also building a five hundred million dollar factory in China. To make batteries, but they are going to build square cells. And what do you guys think about that? When I read that, I thought to myself, well, that seems like a much more efficient use of space than round cells. Depends on how the cooling apparatus works or the heating right. apparatus. So exactly. I think they use that open space for flowing, flowing. Yeah, that fluids. was my thought exactly. So uh, let's talk about Model 3. And first of all, let's talk about the cost of a Model 3 because Tom always brings up every time, Tom's like, well, when Model 3 comes out, the car that you're really going to want the with all the bells and whistles is going to be, I don't know, you keep dropping like 70 grand on me and it gets me very, very <laughs> depressed. So I yeah. found this article from Inside EVs and it's a short video by this guy called Jameson. And uh, he says, if you just go through the website as it is right now for Model S and you look at all the upgrades, the battery upgrade, enhanced autopilot, dual motors, self-driving, um, premium inside stuff, uh, air suspension, sub-zero you know, package, and you just go through and you find out how much each of those cost. And then if you say, well, the base cost of a Model 3 is something like $35,000 and you put all the bells and whistles in, then that would cost you another Somewhere around uh, $44,000. So if you did that, you would have a Model 3 fully decked out costing somewhere around $78,000, $80,000. And I don't believe for a second that it's going to be that high because I think that would be unprecedented for a fully loaded car to be twice that of the base car. But discuss. I don't think you're – I think you're correct – not correct because – well, there's a couple of things. There's obviously not going to be any rear-facing seats in the Model 3, so that's $4,000 right off the button. And there was some speculation from some people in the comment section that all of the sort of upgrades are going to be 25% of the cost of the Model S. But the real question is why wouldn't Tesla allow you to deck this car out to $70,000? I'm not saying that that's going to be what most people get. Most people, it seems, are going to get a couple of the things, the dual motors, the full self-driving, 
the premium package and maybe the air suspension. But again, if you add all of the stuff up, then you definitely will get into the double the cost range. If you look at a model S60 right now and you fully load it up to the P100D, it's two and a half times more. There goes my theory that this hasn't happened before. Hello. It does happen right now. I, I love the Tesla Nation fan base, especially all the, the men and women who have their money down on the Model 3. They're dreaming of having their first Tesla. We, of course, sit back here and we've already had our, our first, second, third, fourth Teslas. I, I haven't kept track. <laughs> but I think that all of the speculation is fun. It's a good exercise, but in reality, I think it's moot because Tesla is streamlining this car. There is not going to be 12 different things you can add on to this car. There will be a couple battery options. There will be, uh, there's not going to be a sunroof option, right? They're going with an all glass roof. This is pretty, this is what's been seen over and over again. They're not going to add an air suspension. They're not going to add a tech, all this stuff is going to be on the car. They're going to streamline this car. I think the reason that all of these, and I call it goofy, why the hell would I, when I go and shop for a Model S, why am I paying extra? Like when I bought mine for a shelf to cover the trunk space, I paid $250 for this piece of foam covered in fabric. That was a that was crazy. And everybody complained about it to the point where they just made it part of the car. And the same thing goes for like lights. Why do you want to have like different versions of interior lights? Just make the interior look cool. Don't give people this option. Now, the reason they have all these options on the Model S is just to milk people who have the money to buy it to fund the car. The car has some like huge profit margin, like 25%. That's like larger than I think any car, maybe not, you know, a Bentley or something, but it's got of, of any mass marketed car, it's got a huge profit margin. And this is all to fund the future endeavor like Model 3. So I don't think Model 3 is going to be anywhere near as complicated. There'll be a few things that you can get. Like if you don't, if you live in Arizona, you don't need heated seats all around and a heated steering wheel. But if you live in Norway, yes, you're going to want that. So major, um, major feature like that. I don't know how to actually define it, but a major feature like that they will offer. But for the most part, all this other tech stuff and, and, uh, uh, um, suspension stuff, all that's going to pretty much just be standard, I think. And, and the, um, upgrade possibilities are going to be much less extensive. That way they're going to be able to put this thing out at an alien dreadnought speed where the car is racing through the factory and boom, all you have is a couple stations and where you're going to plug one thing in or not or software, turn it on or not, period. Right, but you don't think they're going to offer air suspension? You think that – I think – It'll be on no the way car. It's going to be, there's no way it's going to be standard. It'll either not exist or you'll have to pay for it. It makes no sense to make everybody pay for that because a lot of people don't give a crap about that. But it Same increases with, your range. So when the car with, hugs down on the highway – you're going to get a, a better, uh, I know it's not gas mileage, but electrical mileage. You're going to get better range when the car adapts to the road surface. Oh, we'll but, see who's right. But what about cloth seats? You don't think there's going to be premium wheels? We, You think just because every model you've seen so far has a glass roof that there's not going to be a painted roof option? 
That's well, there's weird two, to me. Well, there's two issues going on here. One is how many options you'll get, and then one is the cost. Because as we've seen already, you can load a car up with a lot of stuff and make people buy it later. So in terms of simplicity and production, maybe they have three different versions of the car, and at the high end, you can unlock all the features, and it's a lot more. My specific question was, or concern was that the highest-end model will be really expensive. And I think in the Model 3, because it's a mass-market car, that will be bad advertising. There's something psychological about having a, this car's $35,000, but the car you really want is $70,000. That'll be bad press. You can get away with it right now because you're selling Model Xs and Ss to rich people, and they will go, yeah, of course, you know these are super expensive cars and you want to put everything in it. They're super, super duper expensive. But at that lower end, I think it's worse. It's bad press for you to really feature uh, load this car and have it be a $70,000 car because that's what the press is going to focus on. Oh, but the car you really want is not $35,000, it's $70,000. It's still a stupid, expensive car. So Elon said at the beginning he thinks that most people will probably come in at around $42,000. So I think that all of these add-ons for the rich people with the X's and the S's, they'll still be most of those things, because Elon keeps saying this is going to be a fantastic car at the base, you'll still be able to do most of those things, but they'll be a lot less price. Which brings up, what are they going to do on the very expensive cars to make people still want to buy them? Is it just going to be the size, or are they just going to add some extra super-duper features to the S and the X to make the differentiation? That's what makes sense. So if you don't have all of the bells and whistles on Model 3, and you want them, you buy an S. Or an X, which is a completely different car, I understand. So what is the fundamental basics that you want in your Model 3? And when I ask that question to myself, the key thing has got to be fully autonomous driving. That's got to be throughout all of the cars and then air suspension and, you know, seats made of licorice or whatever the hell you want. You can push that up into the really high end. That's currently $8,000 on the S. And I just don't see them charging that much. So that's $40,000. That makes it, for one option, fully self-driving, $43,000 if it doesn't come on the Model 3. Now, the fully, fully loaded Bolt and the only thing that you don't put in it are like the little dealer add-ons like the cargo mats and stuff like that is $43,905 versus a $37,500 sort of base price. So that adds about $6,000. So you're telling me the a really nice tesla is going to come in at a thousand dollars below the bolt yeah i think so because the bolts cost is in the battery and the whole magic here is their ability to create a battery which is at half the price that lg cam or whoever is putting it in the bolts at. that is where most of the expense of a bolt is at because i sat on one on this weekend uh, really like that car. I love the seats. You can jack it up. We're going to talk more about it. But I think all the expense of that car is in the battery because it's not very flash on the inside. I agree. It should cost $9,000 more than it does because that's what they're losing per unit, right? That's sort of – you've heard anecdotally that they're losing about $9,000 a unit. Again, I don't, I don't disagree with you. I think there will be – a the base price Model 3 will be an amazing car – but if you want it to be self-driving, it's going to cost you five or six thousand dollars. I don't see why they would do it anything less than that. And then what if that? What if the Model Three comes out and the base price is like a, a sixty kilowatt hour battery, and it has cloth seats, 
you know, and it doesn't have all of the navigational features that a lot of other companies sort of charge for, but Tesla's kind of always included in their expensive Model S. I don't, you know, I, again, I don't disagree that the average cost is going to be 42, but I don't think there's any reason. Give me a reason besides bad press, and I don't even think it would be bad press, for them to not charge 70, to not allow people to spend 70 on it if they want, as opposed to a top of the, like the difference is if you're clamoring for a Model S and you want the top of the line, that's 160. If you're clamoring to own a Tesla and you want the top of the line and you can do that for 70, I, I think a lot of people would want to do that. It still seems like a ton of money to me, don't get me wrong, but there are certain features that I want, and if I'm basing it on what they cost now, I'm probably looking at a dollars $56,000 car. But don't they – how do you differentiate then a low-end S from a high-end 3 other than the size of the vehicle? They're going to have to do something that differentiates those. Why would I get a Model S? Well, the differentiator, is, the differentiator is I bought a Model S, and it doesn't have autopilot. And I bought a Model 3, and it does. No, but that's and, what I'm and, saying now. So then why would do, – don't you decimate your low-end Model Ss? They're just done. I'll just max out a Model 3. Right, Another way of saying this only, is what do I put into a low-end S to differentiate it from a high-end Model 3 besides the form factor and size? Maybe you get rid of the low Model S. They had gotten rid of that low-end Model S for a very long time. When did they bring it back? After they announced the Model 3 because they had all these reservations and they thought they could kind of scoop up a few of them and sell them a 60. Actually, they right? got rid of the – go ahead. They got rid of the lowest Model S, right? The $49,500 Model S 40-kilowatt battery, right? They only built like seven or 800 of that them. That was a long time ago, though. But the yeah. 60 was gone, and you could only buy, what, a 75, 8, or 85 at one point. And then they announced the Model 3, and a couple weeks later, you could buy a 60 again because somebody in marketing was like, hey, uh, we should start selling a low-end one. So if you get rid of that one, now your low-end Model S is 80, 85. I wouldn't put it past them to have a, uh, a marketing plan where it's basically a seamless transition. It's like a rainbow, right? The colors just blend into one another. Mm -hmm. So you go from a Model 3, <clears throat> very low end, to the Model 3, very high end, to a Model S on the low end. But at the same time, if I lived in a place like when I was driving around Edinburgh, Scotland in a car, there's no way I would drive a Model S there unless I had like a body shop expert in my back pocket because there's just it's just impossible there's like probably 15 percent of the roads you can't even drive on with a model s so i would want a model 3 but i i do believe they're going to simplify the model 3 i mean that just seems to be the way they're going with the model s they're pulling options off you can only get three dash options now not five dash options there's fewer colors you can get there's fewer interior versions you can get they're they're making it simpler they're continuing to go down that road but they will keep the um, the higher end luxury items on the S. I I would even venture to think that as far as the seats go, there will not be leather seats on the Model Three. Not there even was, as an option. No, I I well I don't know. You're wrong again. That I'll makes things, any amount of money on that one. Any amount of money you want. Yeah. Well, one it was a million dollars. <laughs> you heard it. I say that the way they differentiate 
between the Model 3 high-end and the Model S is on range and speed. So you you move up the Model 3 and the Model S to a much longer range and much quicker, and that's how you do your major differentiation. Well, look, if you want a 500-mile car, you can't get it in a 3. You have to get an S, something like that. I don't think you can do it on leather seats because that's such a standard thing. You've got to do it on something else, and that's ludicrous mode and range and you model 3 will still be really fast it'll be like 0 to 60 in 4 seconds but if you want 0 to 60 in 2.4 seconds you're gonna have to get a model s so that's the way if i was elon and i'm not i don't know if you knew that that's how i'd do it right the car needs to be amazing for thirty-five thousand dollars to get two hundred thousand of those reservation holders to to go for it because that's what they're waiting for 240 miles of range in an amazing car that that is great, but there's you know it's going to have cloth seats for thirty five thousand dollars, or it's going to have sort of that fake leather seat, not real leather. They're going to do something interior wise to be able to to make it more inexpensive. And I agree with you, but I think there's going to be a paint roof, and I believe there will be air suspension, or there'll be no air suspension available like they just won't make it an option so uh, another way you could do it this is just off the top of my head is that you could have autonomous driving in the model 3 and of course autonomous driving in the s and the x but the autonomous driving in the model 3 is only twice as safe as a human but if you want 10 times as safe well you're gonna have to buy the really good car okay how much do you love your kids yeah which car we're gonna gonna talk about the we're going to talk about the limiting of patent technology availability a little bit later in the show as well. So, um. Other features that you might be able to get in the Model 3, here's another story from EV Annex, which is a little story about what is going to be in this display, because they've been really secretive about the Model 3 and what exactly is going to be on the interior of this car. Now, yeah, Panasonic like, is how a... How the hell can you drive it without any kind of instrumentation? There's none. So... This is what's interesting, a little conspiracy theory here by EV Annex. So they're very secretive about the interior of the car. Panasonic is obviously a big partner. We've just talked about it in the Gigafactory. Elon tweeted this, can't wait for you to see the real steering controls and systems for the three. It feels like a spaceship. So we haven't seen anything that's real, he's suggesting right now. Well, it turns out that Panasonic is working on heads-up display with augmented reality baked in there. So using your eye movement and audio controls, you could significantly reduce the amount of time you look away from the road, which is kind of funny in an era where we're moving more and more towards autonomy and who cares about looking away from the road, but that said. So they have a video um, that they show here that shows this overlaying of the displays and maps that's heads up. And with augmented reality, this is me sum- summarizing, you could not only put here's your speed and here's the map and you can look in front of you and see all of this stuff instead of looking down to the side to the giant 17-inch monitor or whatever the size is going to be in the three. But you could do things like it's a really foggy day. Your heads-up display, because it's got the right radars, can see the giant deer that's about to run in front of the car and will do a little representation of a deer in the headlights that you couldn't otherwise see. You could do some really interesting things like that. Or that castle that you see up in the very far away is like, oh, that's Castle Edinburgh Seventh. He killed seven waves. It's great. So it could do not just driving stuff, but information stuff. You're mixing up you're mixing up the two videos. They were, this article contained two videos, which were really cool. The one about the heads-up display that I thought was amazing was uh, that – 
you could have a number of different things going on in your heads-up display, sort of like a fighter pilot does, that is helping you not only to drive, but also you can manage your infotainment system through it. You're basically not having to take your eyes off the road. It could probably link up with your cell phone. Hopefully, you're not going to FaceTime with somebody using it, but I guess, you know, maybe if you clicked on autonomous mode and the car knew that for the next 50 miles, everything's cool. We've driven this road 50,000 times and we can do this safely. You can go ahead and FaceTime, but it actually moves the display with your head. It sees where your head is. Hopefully you don't have microcephaly and uh, it, it looked really cool. It looked really cool. But the the second video where it shows the guy in the office kind of just securing a car, the car shows up, he goes, he picks up his family, and then they go touring across Germany. That was amazing. They all have a tablet. They lay the four tablets down, and now they're playing Monopoly. And the Monopoly board moves out of the way of your coffee cup when you set it down. I mean, there was like some really cool stuff. Panasonic spent a lot of time uh, thinking this stuff up. Can they do it? I don't know. They kind of showed it, but I don't know if that was all CG or not. But it definitely tells me that the future of transportation is way cool. And with all that shit, why would anybody want to drive anyway? Exactly. So, yeah, you're right. There there were two videos, and the second one is where the family is not driving at all, all this virtual reality within the car and outside the car. And uh, it's like uh, the first Star Wars movie where they had that chess game. That just you know, remember that when they had the chess game with yeah, the three D chess, chess game. That's the kind of they stuff kind of that they're suggesting that they're going to be able to do. Um, it's very clear that our concept of what is a display in a car is about to radically change. And there's heads up that displays have been around for a while, but it's very clear that that's going to change pretty radically in the next couple of iterations of cars coming from Tesla at least. But if you look at the interesting thing about both these videos, right, is that Panasonic has this whole automotive thing that they're working on, this heads-up display, and Tesla at the exact same time on the exact same speed and track are working on making it so you don't have to drive. So it's like they're going to they're going to we're going to get to this sort of crossroads of this amazing heads-up display for driving that you no longer need. Exactly. Well, but there's going to be like first world versus developing world, right? So it's going to work sure. better. Autonomous, full autonomous driving is going to work better in some places and it's going to take a period of time. Uh, six months, six years, 12 years, until it can roll out throughout the world. And still, it may be difficult in some countries where the road system's really uh, insecure and or can move because they're just not built well. But the other cool thing that I thought of with this is it reminded me of a video that we, I think, covered about the Hyperloop that one of the Hyperloop companies was envisioning, right? You're, you're riding along in a tube, in this like pod, which is solid walls inside a vacuum tube, which has solid walls. Yet people were looking out as if there were windows on the sides of the Hyperloop. And as the woman in this one video, I recall, was moving her head like forward and backward, she could see a little ahead of the train, a little behind the train. And it was this augmented uh, heads up type display. This stuff's really cool. And it's happening now. We uh, we talked about this months ago about there's a bus right now which has all these displays that are baked into it and they take kids and they sort of drive them down the road and then the displays turn you into Mars. And so the kids are looking around in this virtual world and the teacher is telling them about Mars and as they're looking at the windows, they're not looking at Chicago, they're looking at the surface of Mars. What is possible here 
is pretty uh, sci-fi. We'll see what happens and we'll see how much that option costs. I want the Mars looking out the window mode. Oh, there's your $20,000 upgrade right there. And <laughs> let's talk about Model S news. First of all, there's a cheaper battery upgrade. So on some cars, Tesla's offers up to, as we've been talking about, $20,000 in features that you can unlock later. So on the model, on the 60 kilowatt hour battery uh, version of the Model S, you can upgrade to a 75 kilowatt hour battery just by the click of a software button. That used to be $9,000 and now it's only $7,000. But what's interesting is that they bumped the base price of the car up by a similar amount, by $2,000. Uh. You can also do things like trials of autopilot for a month. You can get in-car messages saying, why don't you upgrade? And I see where this is going, and it could get really obnoxious, which is every time I get in my car, because I've got all these features I haven't unlocked yet, the car's like, Mel, will you give me a bigger battery? I could drive all the way to San Francisco. Just buy a bigger battery. Mel, would you like to have perfume sprayed into the car every time you pass wind? That's another option. It could get Your car is obnoxious. old. Your car is an old grandma sound. That's terrible. <laughs> From Monty Python. <laughs> it reminds me of a it's tour I did of the tenement buildings in terrible. lower Manhattan where uh, the tenants – had the access to electricity. It was a brand new thing, right, at the turn of the century. But there was a box up in the corner of the room, and you actually had to put money in it, like a parking meter, oh, wow. to get electricity. That's pretty cool. Put so one interesting quarter. thing about this, right? So obviously they've been selling more models S60s, and probably not as many people have been using that upgrade, that software upgrade of $9,000. So – my guess is they kind of had to go back to the drawing board and be like, all right, well, we're going to raise the base price two grand to get us a little bit closer to break even on the upper battery. And then we'll just reduce it on the on the backside and see if that will push. You know, it's like a push me, pull you kind of situation with the with the pricing. And, and so it's interesting. So that tells me that not that many people are upgrading that battery after the fact or not as many as they had hoped. Yeah, it does raise the question how many. And I have seen zero information about the percentage of people who are doing these after you drive it away upgrades. Is it 5%? Is it 10%? Is it 20%? Because if it's not very many, I guess you'll see this program start to disappear. Yeah, you probably see it start to disappear. And then we're, we're sort of locked into maybe two battery sizes or whatever. But the other question is, over time, how much do they continue to drop this? So let's say I bought one of those 60s today. And in eight years from now, I still hadn't upgraded to the 75 kilowatt hour battery. How much do you think they're going to charge me then? 500 bucks? 1,000 bucks? Like at that point, they can't still be trying to charge full price would be my guess because they have to real like the percentages of people dropping another nine or 10,000 on an eight-year-old car have got to just be close to zero. Though your battery will be older and potentially have a – I don't know what percentage less charge capacity to hold. But at the same time, as they improve the battery technology, and if they keep everything modular, like in the S, right, or at least the original S 60s and 85s, you could unbolt the battery, right, at the battery swap station and get a new battery within minutes. And if they do that with the Model 3, then arguably, they could upgrade you like five years after you own the car, right? They increase battery capacity yeah. by, I don't know, mm -hmm. 20%. So now your 60 is a 72. And 
well, let's just buy a 72 battery for Christmas for Tom. And we've got a certain trade-in value for the 60. They give a little analysis. And then they can take those things and stick them into power packs, you know, to put on some utility grid scale installation. And who really cares if the power pack takes up a three by four foot square in uh, a three by four foot footprint versus a bigger one, right? Because you know it's just all right. a matter of fitting things together. Making that well, battery, you bring up, sorry, making that I'm battery sorry. pack modular, I think, is really important because one of my concerns is not that you could put a slightly bigger battery in uh, five years from now, but there be a significant you know jump in technology. Mm-hmm. So graphene or nanotechnology, whatever it is, now you can get five times the capacity at the same price that's when i'd want to go okay unbolt it strap that uh, ten thousand dollar battery up there and i'll get a thousand miles that's when i do it otherwise if it's you know a little bit extra mileage i'm just thinking about i'll just lease a new car or your charge rate can change or a factor of three yeah charge rate that's like 10 times faster yeah that's the kind of thing that's like yeah i'll spend some serious cash getting a new battery for that right but it also you robert you bring up an interesting point is that the battery swap we've sort of discussed several times kind of was a failed attempt by tesla to to be part of this sort of quick charging super quick charging kind of situation nobody really liked it so do they continue do they build the model 3 with that same ability if it cost them a little more if it's a little bit more difficult engineering is it a is it a situation where even the battery swap station that they've built can the Model 3 fit on that? Would they have to retrofit that to do it? So yeah, it's, it's an interesting, interesting whether... Well, if you've got... Done. Right now, service centers are running at capacity in many large Tesla market areas. And you've got people who come in and they're like, well, you know, we've had some problem with a battery pack. Maybe now they only have that pack, that problem with every, I don't know, thousandth car. But when you've got 400,000 cars rolling out a year or more or less, after a few years, you're going to have a lot of battery issues compared to when you only had a, a, you know, a small number of cars coming out. So now, how quickly does it take to get that battery out and a new one in? This is why I'm thinking, you know, this whole design, uh, design the, the machine that builds the machine plus make everything, the entire system, as modular and easy to manipulate as possible. I think that's been sort of test, one of test, that will be one of Tesla's big achievements in the world of automotive engineering. I agree with you. I think this modularity makes servicing, it makes everything faster. It's not for you to go swap your battery at Harris Ranch so you can drive further. It's really for servicing. And it's interesting that somebody like Apple has gone exactly the other way in recent years. I don't remember the old, the big cheese grate uh, Mac Pro that used to sit on your floor was very modular. You could pop out the hard drive, you could pop out the graphics card. It was really modular and one of the best machines ever made. Apple has now moved the other way, which is they fuse everything to the motherboard. You can't break into this thing. I think Tesla should go the modular way because for a car, for servicing, it makes it so much easier. Pop out that battery or pop out that drive uh, train and slap a new one in really fast. That's the way to go. So are you listening, Tesla? Do not go the way of Apple in the last few years, please. Yeah, this is some sort of a conflict between engineering and marketing. Because I think the bottom line is that engineers want things that they can fix. It, you know, even if it's at home, when they're sitting at home, they don't want to be stuck with 
you know, the toaster that you can't get into. Like I had this problem with a, a water pot that I used to make coffee and tea all the time. The thing just stopped working. Well, there's no freaking moving parts, but it turns out I looked online. There's a fuse. You got to get the bottom of the pot off. You got to get a special bit because it's like this. It wasn't even a five-star bit. It was like a six-star bit. It was like I went to two different hardware stores. Thankfully, I live in a big city and I was able to find the bit, got it apart. So it's six bucks for the bit and it's going to cost me 15 cents to replace a fuse. Wow. Well, let's talk about um, Tesla changing options. So we've talked a lot about options here. So electric says Tesla has quietly removed the ventilated seat option, which I believe only became what? an option like five minutes ago. What? So the idea here was to ventilate air within the seat cushion to cool you in the hot weather. And uh, some people have created some videos that it makes it look like it's actually Bjorn. How do you pronounce his name? Bjorn. The, the guy. Bjorn. Bjorn. Bjorn created some videos where he took some cellophane and he put it over his seats. And it looks like what was happening is that it was sucking air into the seat and blowing it out somewhere else. And I like this because <laughs> I thought this was the flatest capture mode. I thought you could just sort of let, let loose after you've had a little bit too much chili. And it would somehow, you know, exhaust it outside the car. But Use the biohazard filter in the seat. Yeah, biohazard Ooh. filter in the seat. This would be great. This would be a whole marketing thing. It'd be fantastic. It. Just vent it outside. Just vent <laughs> it away. But now it's going away. I don't know why. But am I wrong or am I wrong? This was just an option that just started and now it's gone. There must be some manufacturing issue or something that's I'm wrong with these. They're breaking. So I don't know. I'm so pissed about this because – January, uh, December 29th or 30th when I secured and put in a reservation on a car and I was like, oh my God, these seats have the ventilated option. This is so awesome. I'm so looking forward to this. And uh, it could even have been marketed as the methane capture mode. Exactly. With yes. Charcoal filter. Absolutely. And so then, of course, the my one week deadline came up and they, they were saying, oh, well, you can wait until the 15th to order your car. So I basically dropped that order. Because I couldn't figure out if I wanted the the sunroof or the all-glass roof. And so I, I delayed. I punted. And now I'm thinking, well, I wonder if I would have kept that order in with the ventilated seats, would I have actually gotten them? Or would they have then said, oh, we've changed this option. It's not available, period. I don't even know if I have ventilated seats in my car. Somebody was asking me, well, do you have those new farty seats? I'm like... I don't know. Let's get some saran wrap. Let's let's get somebody really asked you if they were the farty seats. No, I I can't back that up either. I think I just said that off the top of my head. Hey, let's talk about the Bolt because uh, we know that Tom a couple of weeks ago sat in a Bolt was very impressed. Inside EVs is asking the question, who's buying these? And this is a little video that said first it was the super geeks, and then a lot of Volt owners V. Alt owners rather than B-Bolt owners. And now more and more the world is hearing about it. I went down to Keys, as Tom had suggested, uh, Keys in Van Nuys, down the street from us, with mm-hmm. Grandpa because we wanted to see does it sit up high. And it's a little car and the seats are fantastic. You can pump them all the way up so you can basically almost be standing and slip your buttocks over into that car. He was really impressed with it. I was really impressed with it. Again, that's the style of car I want. Small, zippy, get into and out of uh, parking spaces. That's the style of car I want more than of the S or the Model 3. I want the Model Y, which is the sort of SUV sitting up thing. So I'm really excited about that form factor. But then when Grandpa gets home, he says... I was really liking it, but then um, one of the people who comes and helps over at the house there brought a 
uh, Ford, a plug-in hybrid Ford, and I don't know which one. I assume it's the C-Max Energy. And he goes, the, I like the... It could have been the Focus also, but it's probably the C-Max. Yeah, I'm not sure. I've got to find out from him which one it was. But he's like, I really like the interior of the Ford way better because it's more traditional with more knobby bits. And the Bolt, with a B, is very knobless. It really relies on things like car plan stuff. So it's a lot like a Tesla, not many knobs. And for him, a very traditional car goes like, I'd like some more knobbly bits. Didn't the Ford sit lower, though? Was it traditional in like it looked like a sedan? I don't know which one he was looking at, but the I think it's the C-Max plug-in energy I, I is a bit like an SUV. Bit, I'm going to go look at I one. Think it, yeah, a little bit. I think it sits a little bit lower, personally. So so he he was excited about the Bolt, and maybe he was going to go for it, but now he's not going to go for it? He's stopping the thinking. He's uh, At first it was like, oh, I'm going to do this. Then he saw this Ford and he's like, well, maybe I should just get that because he doesn't really drive far. But he's uh, is it going through the same thing you're going through, Tom. There's these options, but yeah. none of them are great. So you're very right. limited. He likes the range of the Bolt. He likes the sitting upness of the Bolt, but he doesn't necessarily like the interior. And the Ford's better, but the Ford only gets 20 miles and it's got a gas engine. So he's like, ah, I'm driving myself crazy here. He's going Tom on this thing. <laughs> yeah, again, I think it's still a very difficult, difficult decision. I think, again, that the Bolt is a great, should be, if it's built well, a great long-term car for somebody with, and it works for a whole new segment, 20 or 30% more people that the Leaf just didn't work for. And I don't know if, again, I was thinking about this, if LA is sort of unique in this way or a lot of other places in the country are similar – in L.A., I know people that have ungodly 70, 80, 90-mile one-way commutes. Mm. And so for them, if they work at a place or live in a place that doesn't have access, easy access to a charger and they're not there all day long or if they're afraid maybe like the charger is not going to work that day and they won't get home, makes it very, very difficult. Where the Bolt is if you leave your house fully charged, there's good opportunity that you're going to be able to get back fully charged regardless of what happens if you have – you know, if you're doing – the canyon country to Hawthorne or the like like Robert does the Culver City to Oxnard right that's a what is that a 70 mile drive 35 miles what is 52 your 52 miles 52 miles right? right so if you had a leaf there's no way you would feel comfortable making that your commuting car right now that's why I didn't but get it the bolt <laughs> but the bolt works for right. that for that particular drive so again i think for people who are looking for this car as a commuter it definitely fits the bill, and and for me, it's the best car that you can afford to buy today, no doubt. Is it an exciting car? Absolutely not. I really I don't know a, what – I was very impressed with it. I thought it was a – it's exactly what I expected. I guess my expectations for the interior of cars is not much, and the fully loaded version <laughs> is not much uh, – more, as you were saying, than the sort of the base model. And it just gives you more cameras, more sensors and that kind of stuff. I really, really like that car. And I get excited because I think Model Y, Model Y, just like that. Model Y without the alfing Falcon wing doors. It'll so would be you buy car. that car for your son? Uh, yes. Now, we have a gas car and it's a bigger car and he's a new driver. And I don't know the safety of this Bolt yet because it has not yet been tested. Although Robert instructed me last week that X has not been <laughs> tested either. So if it's a safe car, I think that is a 
a good potential car for a new young driver that doesn't want to have to pay for petrol. And uh, it's expensive because I still think a thirty-five, dollars $40,000 car is expensive, but it's not outrageous. It's not Tesla outrageous. So as us, uh, us of Tesla Nation have children who are starting to grow older, driving, becoming more independent, are we going to have our children not only coming home to do their laundry, but also to charge their cars. Oh, you're damn straight. That's the first thing they're going to do. Let's talk about uh, autonomous driving because I posted, me, Mel Herbert, I posted on our Twitter feed, I've got hardware 2.0 in the new S, right? It's all very exciting. It's got the eight cameras. It's got radar. It's all really cool. And they're doing the right thing. They are you know, sort of bringing out the features very slowly. So right now, because I was one of the first people to get the upgrade, you're supposed to be able to use this when you're on a freeway going less than 35 miles an hour, which is the perfect scenario for me right now to use autonomous driving because it's slow enough that I don't freak out and it just you know goes in that heavy traffic very well, right? So in the X, which has hardware 1.0, it works spectacularly under those conditions. I love it. The traffic is bad. The car just drives me. I still have to be attentive, but I don't have to be fully attentive and it takes a bit of the stress out of that. But I can tell you, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, at least on my car, it is a cluster. The rendering of the lanes you see flipping back and forth, and then I posted another one um, a day later. When I'm stopped, the rendering of the lanes is flopping all over the place. It's going boom, boom, shaking side to side, which would be bad enough. It's distracting. But actually, when you engage autopilot, the car does the same things. It does these things where it's whipping in and out between the lanes, but it's going one side to the other, one side to the other, one side to the other. Now, I have heard of one other person saying when they first turned it on, they noticed that, then it got better. But it is unusable right now. And now they just, this morning, Elon tweeted out that everybody who has hardware 2.0 is about to get the update. It's not going to go live. They're going to have it in stealth mode for another week. But by the end of the week, they're probably going to turn it on for every new hardware 2.0 car, which is now in the thousands, maybe in the two to 4,000 range or more. And I would suggest to people, if you see that their little lanes are flipping back and forth, that rendering of the lanes... Don't engage because your car is going to do some very silly, jerky movements. I suspect I have a bad sensor, and this is not happening to everybody, because if it was, they wouldn't push it. But uh, they haven't sent me a note to say there's something wrong with your sensor. There there used to be, I think they might have disabled this, but there was, uh, with the voice command, you could say, report a bug. Mm. And you could actually talk, like make a recording that ended up in Tesla's lap. But I would actually, and, and I've had issues in the past, even recently, when something was going on. I don't remember the situation, but I called Tesla and I said, hey, oh, it's right. It was a tire pressure sensor monitors. And I was having a problem when I was coming down in Colorado from elevation and it was very cold. And I kept getting this warning and I'm like, oh, shit, do I have to pull off the highway? on, you know, icy roads and cold to test my my pressure in my car. And I did, and it was fine, but one tire was a little off, whatever. I think it had to do with either the batteries. It doesn't matter. But I called them, and they had a hard time looking at the first situation, which had occurred a couple hours earlier. They could look at the situation right here, right now. So my recommendation is call Tesla when it's happening Mm. and say, I have an issue right now. They have like an, a kind of an emergency number where you get right through to somebody. And if you need like, you know, roadside assistance, that's what it's for and or a problem active in your car. Talk to them about it because I'm surprised was the car actually moving from side to side or was just the lines on your display looking like they were moving from side to side? So my car's completely stopped 
the lane drawings are flopping side to side, and I put on the oh. Twitter feed in there was not an earthquake at the time. <laughs> I think it was fine, <laughs> and the lanes are flipping side to side. I'm torn about calling them and having them interrogate it and getting fixed versus doing, doing the experiment. How long for them to work it out themselves, or will the next upgrade of software fix it? So I kind of don't want to call them. I want to see what happens in the natural habitat. Go, Tom. But it sounds a little bit like it still be calibrating on some level like it's see like that would be a, a calibration so it's trying to figure out and test and test and go back and forth or whatever but I, I don't know if it's a bad sensor like you like you suspect i don't understand why you would hesitate to bring it in just to make sure that that's not what was going on because again you're not going to engage it well it's more for tesla nation to it's more of an right. experiment like here's clearly a problem i don't know if it's a problem right. with my iteration of the software or my hardware mm-hmm. I want to see how long they take to work it out because it's easy. I guess it's easy for me yeah. to call them and say, I think there's something wrong and we'll do that experiment. So I'm going to give it another day, drive it around a bit more, um, see what happens. And if it's still occurring, I'll do exactly as you said, Rob. While I'm there and it's happening, I'll try and do it that way. So let's talk about the end of car ownership anyway. This is from the Washington, uh, the Wall Street Journal. And self-driving tech is going to turn transportation into a service. We've talked about this many times. I just wanted to point it out again. This is now coming into the mainstream literature with the accelerator of the self-driving tech and the fact that this will drive down prices and things like Uber by maybe to a quarter of what it is today and always available, the idea of you owning a car is quickly going to disappear. Or at least the idea of the average American family, I think, has something like three cars. The idea that you'll have three cars will be completely ridiculous. You'll have one special purpose car and the rest of the time you'll take Uber, and I keep saying this a million times, but I hang out with a lot of millennials because my son's friends are all, you know, 16-ish, and most of them do not have a license a year after they could have gotten a license. Very different from my generation, which is as soon as you could get a license, that was independence. Most of them don't because they've got friends who drive, they're afraid of driving, which is a lot of them said, I'm, that's a really complex task and I'd rather be on my phone, and Uber. So I believe that this when autonomous driving um, is ubiquitous, that people will basically stop driving or we'll all get really bad at driving. Yeah, like who would want to drive if your car can do it for you? I mean, we were talking about this going up and back to Lompoc because I sort of went and there was another Tesla in our sort of caravan and we're all like, you know, kind of pooped when we get to the superchargers on the way back and driving a lot. I would have loved to have this whole thing done autonomously. And would I have missed? Would I, you know, maybe I would have taken over during the mountain roads, but honestly, probably would have let it go. Car dudes are always going to say, I love to drive. Yeah, I get it. You're the five percenters. You love to drive. You like to drive fast. You're good at driving. That's cool. Most of us could give a rats. Most of us just <laughs> want to get there. Yeah, every now and then on a Saturday, yeah. I want to drive around a windy road. But most of the time, I just want to be driven there. I want to be a princess and I want to be on my phone. Okay. Right, but you want to be on a windy road because it's beautiful and you want to be able to enjoy it. You don't necessarily want to be the one that has to freaking drive on it. At least that would be my thing. I, I don't care about the physicality of driving. I like to drive around, you know, through the state, through the country because I like to see what it looks like and I can spend more time doing that in an autonomous vehicle. But be outliers. I get that aspect of it. I think there'll always be cars that give you the ability to drive them, whether it's with your eyes or with a heads up display or who knows, who knows what it will be in a hundred years because it's going to be very, very different than it is today. 
And another reason we need autonomous driving is from this article from Autoblog, which is Apple is being sued because of a tragic story where somebody was using FaceTime while driving their car, completely distracted, crashed into another car, killed a young lady. It's really a horrible story. And this is why we need autonomous driving, because human beings are idiots. Um, they. Right, but the big deal about this particular article, right, was that Apple filed a patent Yes. To turn off FaceTime when it was moving at a certain amount of speed, like years ago, but never implemented it. So they're actually – this is a lawsuit, terrible tragedy, based on sort of a crime of thought and inaction. Like Apple thought of this as being a potential problem but didn't implement it into the technology. Yeah, so that's what the lawsuit is about Um I don't know if this is just uh, a family that's grieving that sort of wants to find somebody to blame. But there is technologies right now, and there are actually apps right now that I've just heard about on another tech show, um, um, Twit, which is one of my favorite tech shows. And they talked a lot about this. There is the technology right now by Google and Apple to basically turn off your phone when it realizes you're driving. And whether this should be implemented now, whether uh, they'll be forced to implement it, there's a lot of discussion around that because – Car accidents in the last two years have gone up 10 or 15%. 8,000 people a year now, it's estimated in the United States, are killed because of distracted driving from things like phones. So this may move from a lawsuit, which initially seems silly, um, to it might actually be mandated that uh, the phone manufacturers start turning off some of this crap because human beings cannot be trusted. So how do you handle being in the backseat of someone's car who's driving and you want to FaceTime with somebody. Yeah, so they have a big discussion about that. Apparently, there is some technologies which would allow that to occur um, so that it knows exactly where the, the phone is in the car. So if you're in the car seat, if your phone is in the car front driver's seat, then it would turn off. That I don't know how they do that, but uh, apparently there is some technologies that allow for them to work out, even within the space of a little car there, where the phone is and you shouldn't be using it. Some of the apps that I use, like Waze, I own no stock. Uh, well, when you try to put in an address and the car is in motion because it has a sensor, uh, will say, no, only passengers can do this. Are you a passenger? So they have this sort of out. Mm-hmm. So like if you're driving and you're stopped at a light, uh, you could click, yes, I'm a passenger and enter in an address. Or if you're like if I'm driving, uh, sitting alongside my wife who's driving and I want to put in the address. But if that's the case, then maybe you know they should have a log that can be subpoenaed. That said, yeah, Robert said he was a passenger when, in fact, he was on the I-5 doing 85 miles an hour and then crashed into somebody and hurt them. This is actually that what you just said is actually occurring right now. So people have said, no, I wasn't on my phone when I crashed. And cars like Tesla's can tell you exactly the instant you crashed and your iPhone can tell you exactly the instant you were texting. Those two occurred at exactly the same time. I'm sorry, sir. You're mm-hmm. a liar. Right. So. There, I've never really thought about this until I heard this and then I read this article. Does Apple and Google and people make phones that are we now know are incredibly addictive for distraction? Do they bear some responsibility, therefore, to help us when we are using them in cars? And I think the answer probably is going to be you're going to start to see this implemented. They're going to have to help us out because these things are addicting. I have to physically take my phone and put it in the glove compartment or I will touch it. I will fondle it when I shouldn't when I'm driving. And unless you do stuff like that, you just can't help yourself because your brain has been taught, bing, oh, look at the phone, and then you kill yourself. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, let's talk more about autonomous driving. Let's talk from Tesla Arty, 
We love those guys. Chris Leitner will be joining Tesla. This is a serious programming dude, by the way. He heads up, he's going to head up the autonomous driving software part of Tesla, and he's the guy that created Swift and many other pretty remarkable software programs. And this allows the other guy that's been running the autonomous software program, who had a job at SpaceX and at Tesla, to go back full-time on SpaceX and then have somebody full-time concentrating at Tesla. So I think this is actually really good. They've stolen a smart guy from Apple to improve their autonomous driving. Could you fix the rendering on my car? It's not working right now. (laughs) Hey, Chris. Hey, Chris. It's a a win-win, right, for these two companies, right? It's a win-win for SpaceX because Jenna gets to go back and do full-time work at SpaceX, and Tesla gets a fully focused, very smart, programmer who can build programming languages and make things easier so good job tesla nice hire and this goes to why i'm wearing this shirt today i'm wearing my falcon 9 i'm sorry my falcon heavy shirt yes there it is falcon heavy there it is because they've announced that they've got to now re uh, or say modify one of the landing pads in in florida so that there's actually three pads for one rocket and so that's when the Big Falcon 9 goes up, which is three, I'm sorry, the Big Falcon Heavy goes up with three Falcon 9 rockets all attached together. They want to retrieve all three of those first stage units. And they're not going to be connected when they come down. They're going to be in separate pieces. So you're basically going from landing one Falcon 9 uh, rocket core, I think that's how they call it, to landing three at once. So it's they're going to need so this awesome. autonomous driving dude back at SpaceX to finish that little project because this is the year that Falcon Heavy goes off. How cool is that going to be? One rocket goes up. Oh, my God. And then three little rockety dudes come down and self-land. That is going to be cool. Wherever that is, we have got to be there. Yeah, I definitely want to be there. I'm starting to, you know, mooch anybody and everybody that I meet from SpaceX and tell them I've got to be there. Uh, That's going to be in Florida, though. Yes. Well, we'll autonomously drive there. Electric! has a little article about Future Faraday, which says, good news, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we've got some price uh, (laughs) costing on the uh, FF91. It is going to cost less than $300,000, which I was worried about. I thought it might just nudge over that (laughs) $300,000. Now, this car is a 130-kilowatt battery. I get it. It has LiDAR, and it's got super-fast acceleration. I get it. But this company, which may not exist in five minutes, is obviously trying to get the super tiny, tiny, tiny market of the super, super, super rich people. Um, $300,000, really, this car is becoming more silly all the time. First, it looked like a Batman car. Now it looks like a real car, but a car for $300,000. Even the really, really well-off Tesla people are going, damn, that's an expensive car. Right. So what this basically this article solidifies is that this is not an actual car company, right? This is a toy being played with by a Chinese billionaire to sort of not really be interested in being a player in the car market. They're looking to be a niche car market because, okay, there is another company that makes cars that average in the $184,000 to $450,000 range new. Uh, can you gentlemen guess what car company that might be? Uh, Ferrari? Uh, it's very correct. 100% accurate. Thank you. And Ferrari makes made about 7,600 cars uh, in the last year. Now, Ferrari is a company worth about $10 billion. It's owned by Fiat Chrysler, which is also worth about $10 billion. So uh, we're, they're not playing in, they're not playing the game of like building a car. I don't think even $300,000 doesn't put them 
in the same sort of realm as what Tesla was trying to do. They've never stated that their long-term goal or you know is to build these mass market cars. So this is a billionaire playing games, trying to build a niche car. $300,000, ridiculous. So Faraday Future, we should stop talking about it. Yeah, I was saying that they wanted to fill this in this gap that exists. So Tesla's making, you know, very buyable cars for a lot of people who wouldn't normally buy a Ferrari, but get a car that has a lot of Ferrari like features, especially speed and handling. But they go up, you know, between sixty and fifty thousand hundred and fifty thousand, sixty to hundred and fifty thousand. And then the next electric car that's most impressive above that is quite a bit more out of reach. This is a car that I saw at the uh, e Grand Prix about two years ago. It's the Rimac Concept One, which is an amazing car. If you if you haven't yet seen it, there's plenty of stuff on YouTube for it, and it's basically an eight hundred. Uh, I'm sorry, a nine hundred thousand dollar car that packs over a thousand horsepower. It's zero to sixty in like two point six seconds, though. The new one, if you want to buy it, is two point four seconds, and it's just blazingly fast it's beautiful car it's made really nicely the interior is fantastic but they've made eight how many have they made what's the range eight what's the range the range on the car was something like uh you know was in the close to 300 mile range i believe i think i wrote those numbers down but you know when i was thinking about this reply to this little uh article on faraday that is future and uh, and then all of a sudden in, a, in a electric, this this article popped up where the Rimac uh, concept one went up against a Bugatti Viron, which is arguably sort of the pinnacle car of any car enthusiast. It's the fastest. It's uh, it looks different than any other supercar. It's not it's very rounded. It's not at all sharp and edgy. And it's got all these beautiful like luxury features on it. And so they ran uh, this all electric car up against this V12. I think it's a V12. Uh, amazingly tuned uh, Italian sports car. The Bugatti uh, goes anywhere from a million and a half to $2.7 million. And the Rimac is whatever, $980,000. And guess what car won? The electric car won. And it was amazing. And they basically uh, attributed it to the fact that they could fine-tune the torque to e- any of the four wheels. And using electricity, it had like millisecond accuracy, whereas the Viron doesn't have that capability. It's sort of like old school. They're trying to make speed through a much bigger, faster, better tuned engine. But with electricity, you can, you know, go beyond that. And uh, the fact that they raced in five degree weather in, uh, I think it was Serbia, where the Rimac is from, or Croatia, they uh, they said, well, you know, the cold might have had a factor and they're going to redo this race again uh, in the summertime when it's warmer. But that was pretty impressive. And then and then I looked at some stats. Go ahead, Tom. Well, I just wanted to make sure that uh, Tesla Nation was aware the Bugatti is a French supercar, not an Italian supercar. I don't want to get a whole bunch of letters about that. My bad. How much do no you worries. think it costs to change the oil on your Bugatti? Seven hundred and fifty dollars. Yeah, what do you think? Oil change on a on a million and a half dollar car? Uh, two and a half thousand dollars. Yeah, twenty one thousand dollars for a, <laughs> an oil change what? and a yearly service. No way. Oh, that's 000. with the yearly service. 
Right. <laughs> well, that seems like a much better deal. Yeah, much better deal. <laughs> they actually quoted how much the uh, recommended tires, a set of tires for the Bugatti were. And I, di- I didn't put this down. I wasn't going to talk about it, but still, it just blows my mind that you could spend – well, how much would a set of tires, special tires for your... Got to be $95,000 if the <laughs> oil changes 21. It was quoted as like $40,000. Oh, ridiculous. Such just a deal. Amazing. Yeah. You could I, put, you could almost buy four bolts and just put the body on top of it and drive all four bolts around together. Amazing. Let's talk about supercharging because there's a couple of stories here and a real world experience. So Forbes has an article here. That says, you know, there's this guy called Trip Chowdhury, Chowdhury of Global Equity Research who did some math on how much Tesla could make from charging now for the supercharger network. And he was saying that they will make a huge amount of money and add that to the bottom line. But this article from Forbes by Chuck Jones says, hang on, wait a second. What you uh, did, Mr. Tripp, when you did this was some really silly numbers, which was every single Tesla owner is going to use a supercharger for 30 minutes a day, and then there'll be millions of Teslas, and therefore Tesla will make billions of dollars out of supercharging. And he says this is absolutely ridiculous. Maybe uh, Tesla users will use a supercharger once a week, but there is no way that people are going to be using a Tesla supercharger for 30 minutes every single day. So they might make some money out of it, but Tesla themselves says, we're not planning on making any money out of this. This is just to stop abuse and to help build out the supercharger network. So if you read that very bullish, and I like it, that very bullish article that said Tesla's going to make lots of money out of supercharging, I don't believe that's true. But if you think about the last thing that you just said, right, well, Tesla's going to use the money to build out the supercharger network, that does imply that Tesla's going to make a lot of money on this program right. to build out the supercharger network, whether they're going to, you know, obviously that's not, that doesn't work out to be profit, but it is a lot of revenue that they will use towards building more superchargers. And I think he's wrong as well. I don't think anybody's using 30 minutes of supercharging. I don't know that most people are going to use more than their 400 uh, kilowatt hours of supercharging that is, you know, included with the price of your Tesla right now. And uh, do you think, Robert, that we should have more superchargers? And I want you to back it up with a story. With a detailed story. Well, definitely we need more supercharger access and uh, amount and speed you know, going up to Vandenberg, uh, I realized that, you know, I do drive a little bit above the speed limit, which saps your energy. So on a the way little. up, I stopped. Sorry. I said a little. You've never driven with me, Tom. Yeah, we have. We've seen it. <laughs> oh, we actually that was just test. I just wanted to test out your ex. <laughs> so got to Oxnard supercharger there was only there were like three or four cars there early morning we're just charging up to top off so we can get to vandenberg and then back to another charger and then afterwards we went to the buellton supercharger after lunch so i figured you know i'd let people bleed off and like kind of like exhaust the the uh, exhaust the superchargers basically fill them up so we got to the supercharger you know there was one open space in Buellton, which wasn't too bad but by the time we left there was already one guy waiting and then we took off and we went back a different route we didn't stop at oxnard actually we did stop at oxnard just to get some coffee and i drove by the supercharger and i actually took a panoramic shot i put it on my twitter of like three cars three teslas waiting and the 12 slots full 
or no, it's 10 slots at Oxnard. And then I thought, wow, I'm so glad I don't need to charge. And then just shortly thereafter, Ross Scheingold sent out a tweet from Buellton, which showed a whole line of cars waiting and the thing all full, basically sapping anybody going to Southern California with a Tesla from getting there in a timely fashion, which really sucks. That means that, you know, there needs to be a different way to get yourself back and forth. So when Tesla does one of these launches, we should probably have a slew of destination chargers at Lompoc Airport or wherever so that we can charge up while we're waiting for the launch to go off. But it, it does really bring up like this is predictable. This happens every time they do this from Vandenberg. Right. That the Oxnard supercharger and the Buellton supercharger get full and people are waiting and you're ticked off and you've just been excited about to see this event. And it's predictable. I don't know why they can't have a truck that comes along that's full of uh Power walls or what are the what's the big one called? So I can never remember the which one. Power pack. Power packs, and have a whole bunch of extra people there charging from some more portable um, charging system. Or for a lot of people, it would be okay to just have you know AC charging at the fastest rate, and you go and have lunch for two hours, right. and then you come back to your car and you got another hundred miles on your car. So something's got to give here. But it just at least in Southern California, I know a lot of you that don't live in Southern California are saying that our superchargers are never full. We are at the cutting edge. There's a lot of Teslas in the, this state, and uh, we are showing you the growing pains. Once you have a lot of Teslas and then you have some events, it's a cluster, and there's got to be a way to fix it because it's going to slow people wanting to get electric cars. Once you tell them that they're really great, you should get them, and then you can never charge them when there's an event. That's going to suck. I think it has a lot to do with the parking lots in which Tesla sticks superchargers. They, you know, they're, I don't know if they're fighting for it, but they're definitely struggling for more space. And it would be fantastic to have an entire row of destination chargers, people going to the movie, going to lunch, you know, going to walk around for an hour. All I need is whatever, 40 miles. If you've got two chargers on your car and there's a 100 amp or 70 amp uh, destination charger, you're golden. You don't need to. And they've done that at space, at the uh, Tesla Hawthorne facility where they do all the design work. There's just a slew of destination chargers. I used one when I was there. I didn't bother with the supercharger because I was going to walk all around the Hyperloop and go to have a burger and so on and so forth. And so we just need more capacity. And the fact in this article that they're going to make a fortune of money to expand the supercharger network by charging people, you know, beyond a thousand miles a year, I think is lunacy. I think this is really an opening for superchargers to be accessible by other cars like Porsche, right? Not a huge volume car, but a car that can, you know, that that uh, will sort of bring in some extra cash, get some other car manufacturers to dump hundreds of millions of dollars to blast out more superchargers and bring those people in because the technology, I mean, they're saying CCS chargers can go to 400 kilowatts or 300 kilowatts, but, you know, Elon is is intimating that that's child's play. And so who knows what the supercharger top end they're looking at might be. And if you could get somebody like Porsche, Mercedes, people who are actually close to Tesla, maybe even Toyota, if they'll give up their freaking fuel cell, will transition to a supercharger standard. This may be the intro to get those folks to pay for their, quote, gas. 
But I think you bring up a, an interesting point, and I've been thinking about charging, and, and we've had conversations in the last couple of weeks about Mel, you know, and the, and the sort of supercharger service station model. And I think the real answer is not that, and I think we've all been thinking about it in the wrong way, and I think it is about what you're saying. It's about parking lots everywhere having destination chargers or fast chargers just available much more ubiquitously. So instead of spending a million dollars to build a gas station, a service supercharger station on one corner, spend that million dollars and put 20 of them, 20 of these faster other style of chargers in 20 parking lots all over all in that same area. And then you get, you know, these small EV service stations. And this is what you need to have happen in cities like Chicago. Cause like, you know, I walk around Chicago, there's no space, additional space. It would be really expensive to build a single supercharger system. But I walked to the Best Buy this morning and there are 500 parking spots, 600 parking spots in the parking lot of the Best Buy. So what if the whole wall were full of, I don't know, Southern, obviously I'm in Illinois, but like Southern Illinois energy chargers. And those were the super, you know, those were the filling stations of the future. And in your same thing, it would, it, to me, it seems ridiculous at this point for the Oxnard, the people who own that Oxnard mall to not look at the fact that the superchargers are heavily impacted and put in 20 chargers of their own that, that people could use because it will keep them in their locations longer. And what about even this model, which I was thinking about? So let's say you are charge point and you're going to put in 10 superchargers in a mall and you, you can tell the mall owners that your people have clicked in to the charge point and they've gone into the mall and spent a hundred bucks in your mall. Maybe you get 1% of that. Maybe you get a half a percent of that because you're driving traffic to the mall. There has to be new, more outside-the-box ways of thinking about charging infrastructure. Does supercharger version 3.0 that Elon suggested last week could be over 350 kilowatts in charging, and so all these people are charging in five minutes, does it change it? Instead of them sitting there for 30 or 40 minutes, they're there for five minutes. Does that basically mean that if you have that system, you've increased your capacity sixfold overnight? Yeah, I think it does. I think it totally I think that makes a lot of sense, although it doesn't help you or I. Today. Yeah. So faster charging, more charging, and then Tom's out-of-the-box charging. I like all of these solutions, and I think that probably it's going to be all of the above. You're going to have faster chargers. You're going to have more ubiquitous chargers. You're going to have faster AC chargers. More, more, more. You can't keep doing this, Tesla. I'm so angry with you, Tesla. When you have an event, plan for it. Spend a little bit of money and plan for it. It's not This isn't okay. their event, though. This is SpaceX event. Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah they've kind of connected. They're kind of umbilicated. So, Robert, are there any more superchargers being built this week? Yeah, so this week is a nice week in uh, Tesla supercharger world. We've got three new open superchargers from our last show in Lima, Montana. Have you ever been to Lima, Montana? No, I have not. I wonder if they grow lima beans in Lima, Montana. Mm-hmm. There's also two more in China. Uh, one's at a Hilton hotel and the other one's in Ningbao, which uh, I'm not sure where that is, but I'm glad they have them there. You know, this reminds me, we had a uh, letter that showed some uh, sort of like uh, pirate video or pirate audio of the uh, Gigafactory event. And 
Elon, I listened to this thing with my best headsets, just straining in a quiet room for 20 minutes until I had to give up because I could barely hear what they were saying. But Elon told a great story about Teslas in China. I don't know if there's a good time to talk about it, but I think I'll wait. There's permitted four new Tesla superchargers permitted. One in Brisbane, Australia. Excellent. Excellent. We need that. That's the, there's a corridor from sort of Brisbane in the north all the way down to Adelaide in south. And they're trying to open this whole thing up from uh, north to south where most of the Australian population lives with supercharged. So that's exciting. That's just another excuse for the New Zealanders to hate the Australians. There are many excuses. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's two more in Texas, including El Paso, Texas. I wonder how close to any, uh, any oil derricks that might be. And then there's a new permitted uh, superchargers in France. And then they've uh, started construction in Milford, Connecticut. So in total, that makes two, four, six, eight superchargers either open or beginning their process, which is a great, uh, great one week. That's like one a day. That's almost one a day. I'm very excited about it. Let's do a quick uh, renewable energy stories, and then we'll get into letters because, oh, my God, I think we might be breaking a record again this week. This is starting to get... Ridiculous. I understand that you don't care if it goes long, but there's resources required to edit something that is eight days long. I have to take the entire day off. This is Electric. And Electric says, just as an aside, solar industry employs 373,000 Americans, 2.8 million people globally. And I just wanted to bring this up, that 14% of new US jobs last year was in the solar sort of renewable industry, which I think is astounding 14 percent of all jobs of all jobs so mr trump are you listening now and i also wanted to say that there is a great cartoon in this article as well that has uh, from 1978 these exxon scientists went to the executives and said you know that fossil fuels are calling global warming and that's going to result in uh, climate change and that's going to be bad and so the executives had a choice to tell the world and to move themselves away from this polluting industry or to start a disinformation campaign just like uh, the tobacco industry had done the decade before they chose the latter thank you very much you mean if you're 39 years old Right now, if you are 39 years old, which I assume a few talking Tesla Nation people are, that when on the when you were born, Exxon already knew that fossil fuels were f-ing up the world. The lawsuits are going to uh, come just like they did with the tobacco industry, and this is why I've been following how they do this. So, again, if you go to Exxon's website, they say. Fossil fuel burning does change the climate. This is a bit of a problem. We don't know how bad it is, but it's certainly real. And so they accept the science. But then they fund third parties to do the disinformation campaign so that they can pretend, no, no, look on our website. We we're, we weren't uh, being disinformation people. Yes, you were. We're watching and we're going to call you out. And I cannot wait for the lawsuits to start just like it was so exciting when the tobacco industry lawsuits occurred. So this is a very, very, very positive article about the future of renewables and how they're catching on and how so many jobs are created. And you guys made it about the oil companies, which I get. Awesome. I just can't help myself. But I have some terrible, terrible news for you, Mel, and potentially some terrible news for other folks as well. What all of this means to me is that Mad Max is no more. Right. The the futuristic Mad Max where people are out there like trying to scrape the last piece of petrol into their crazy cars. It doesn't exist because eventually 
they're just going to be electric cars and it's all going to be fine. They're going to be charging their cars for the solar. So that future, that dystopian, Mad Maxian, we need more petrol future uh, feels like it's not going to happen anymore. So, you know, good on us. Good job, planet. Yeah, but we're going to lose all those cool effects where they have the flames spewing out the sides of the vehicles and using right. the the gas to shoot at one another, these flamethrowers. Right, but like crazy guys in skull masks will just pull up and be like, uh, hey, would it be possible if I could charge my car uh, using your solar panels? You'd be like, <laughs> sure. like a taser laser. Device. No, it'll be, it'll be Mad Max, but it'll be water. There's a whole thing. There's a new uh, podcast that you yeah. got me onto, Tom, which is what's it called? Yeah. Reveal? Reveal. Amazing. It's a really excellent podcast, and I just listened to the one about water wars. And so don't yeah, worry, me, me we too. won't be fighting over petrol because we're going to solve that, but we are going to be killing each other over water. It's going to be great. There's another article here from Clean Technica which says that uh, in southern Europe, there is an enormous amount of renewable energy and they're going to start tapping into it. But then somebody depressed me by talking about how many terawatts is being currently generated by gas and oil. So and I was excited. I read this article and it was like, oh, my God, tw- half of the – energy being produced last year or the new energy capacity being brought online last year was from renewables that was half of uh 24 gigawatts so like 15 gigawatts i think was what the actual final number was and i was curious i was like well then what does this mean how many years until uh there's enough of these renewables to replace all of the the energy. So I wanted to see how much we produce. Holy crap, 2,732 terawatt hours of Ooh. energy were created by oil and gas. Uh, it's going to be a long time. <laughs> um, yeah, well, that's why we need this exponential explosion, which I believe we're right at the beginning of. I think the world currently right now uses 16,000 terawatts of energy a year. Um, and that is a tiny, tiny fraction of the amount of solar energy that hits the planet. So uh, we've got to get moving. So uh, could you open a gigafactory in Buffalo, New York, and start pumping out some solar panels? Could you? Could you? And put one Working in on. France and in Poland and in two or three in China and Australia. So let's do about a thousand letters. And the first <laughs> one is from Scott Corwin. And he says, uh, regarding uh, Robert's Model S adapters, and he basically says, look, I'm looking for a Model 3, but uh, let's talk adapters. How many adapters do I need to get? Which types? Uh, Let's say I'm going to be doing a lot of driving around the place. Talk to Scott. What does he need? You know, as Tesla develops the supercharger network, if you're staying on interstates and there are destination chargers along your route, you need surprisingly few adapters. But if you're a little more compulsive, sort of like myself, and or you're going into places where there aren't reliable, uh, dependable chargers, then I would recommend you either have none of them or all of them. That's sort of my my play. So there are quite a few different Tesla adapters that fit on your typical, on your regular wall charger, uh, plug-in wall charger that you got with your car. I think there's five or six different adapters and I'll make a photograph of all of them and uh, and show them on maybe I'll put it on my Twitter feed and then there are extra things and I was thinking maybe what would be best would be to do a tour of Robert's trunk I think that would be cool that's your if that's I, your homework the yeah, tour of my trunk if I bought all of these adapters Robert like if I went tomorrow and I saw your and I took the tour of Robert's trunk, and I was like, I need to have all of these just in case. Uh, what's it going to cost me? Do you have Amazon Prime? Yes. Okay. Then it's probably going to cost you somewhere between three and $500. 
to have every adapter. Well, to have all the things that I found, I mean, there's been a, Mel has one item that I don't have. I have, you know, extension cord envy. So he's got a J1772 extender adapter. I don't have a Chatamo adapter, which arguably, uh, if you're really going to be doing some serious Tesla touring that you should have a Chatamo adapter. So really that number could go up closer to a thousand dollars, but I'd say somewhere between 500 and a thousand dollars and you would be fully outfitted. Uh, you'd pay a little extra, right? Because the weight of all of this stuff is probably approaching, I don't know, 150 pounds. So you're going to have a little bit reduction in your range as a result. But, uh, again, if you're going to be like, crossing parts of the country where there aren't superchargers like when i went from uh the uh like flagstaff arizona up to moab utah there's some amazing country there without a lot of charging infrastructure then you're you're going to need to have more of this stuff available to you the one i've used the most by far is the j1772 extension i've used that a lot of the time so i suggest uh, you get one of those i have a follow-up question for you then robert what are the two most common ones that you use most of the time like i know you have all of them just in case you reach somewhere but like what are the two that are the most useful have been the most useful for you well so you get two with your car you get the nema 1040 um 1450 that's the Mm -hmm. big dryer plug that charges at 50 amps you get that with your car uh, I use that all the time, every day practically. And you also get a, a typical, I think it's a NEMA 515, which is the standard wall plug. I use that fairly rarely, but I do use it when I'm in like a place where I'm going to be there for a night in a little hotel and I set it up on extension cord. But there's two more NEMA 5 series. There's the one that has the T-blade uh, configuration and the one with the two horizontal blades, those are both 110. Uh, those are basically standard plugs that you find in a lot of exteriors of buildings that can allow you to charge at five or maybe as much as eight miles per hour, Tom. So the dryer plug that you have that you said you use every day, where do you use that? At my house. I actually, instead of installing anything special to charge my Tesla, I looked at the time for what is the least expensive way for me to charge my Tesla. And I basically ran a couple of thick copper lines from the junction box, I mean, from the uh, power box, the uh, service panel, all the way out to my front porch and this exterior cover over a dryer plug. And that's it. That's for charging the car. Oh, so you don't have a Tesla charger? I don't. Well, yeah. I just... I did just buy one because I'm I don't have a Tesla charger either. We use the the adapter basically every single day, the J2 adapter uh, to the Tesla. That's what we have at home because we had originally built the charger that we had installed was for the RAV4. Right. And you can you can juice up those those uh, uh, those uh, plugs, the J1772 style chargers. You can actually juice those up to deliver as much as like 80 amps to actually charge your Tesla as if it were the high-powered destination charger. So there's a whole range of possibilities. Mine's 40 amps. 
Um, we've done one letter and we've got about 20, and at this rate, awesome. it's going to take us the rest of our lives. <laughs> Alejandro Peña says, uh, what's it going to take to get onto the Tesla network? So Tesla network, as we understand it, is going to be you can lease out your car and use it like Uber. And he's asking the question, do you think you'll have to have a fully autonomous Model 3 or S or whatever you've got to join that network? And I think this is an interesting question because not so much for the Tesla network because we have no idea what that is. But I think what you're going to see – in Uber is a transitional period where you have some Ubers that are humans and some Ubers that are fully self-driving. And then over time, it'll be completely self-driving. And I wouldn't be surprised if Tesla goes the same way. Sometimes the car is in full self-driving mode. Sometimes there's a person behind the wheel. We don't know. Interesting question. Thank you, Alejandro. I thought it was interesting because it's true. There is some uh, equipment cost for putting all the autonomous equipment and or processing power in the car. But really, the cameras and the radar are going to be plugged on every car. I'm certain of that, just like it is now with the Model S. The question is, that computer, that uh, supercomputer that's 40 times more powerful than the computer that was in the first generation cars, that's got to have a price. Is that $1,000? Is that $4,000? I don't really know, but Judging from what computer costs are, I'm sure it's $1,000. And they may just have it so that, you know, if the day comes that you decide to put on all autopilot, they just pop up the back seat, plug this thing in, bolt it on, and boom, for whatever their price is to you, you now have complete autonomous driving. On the other hand, do they just keep it, as he suggests, for like turn on when you're saying, like, I'm going to drive to, I don't know, some faraway place. I'm going to go to Phoenix and I don't want to sit and drive through the desert. So this week, put in a few quarters or whatever and get the autonomous driving. I don't know. That's an interesting question. And I think uh, whatever makes financial sense is what Tesla will do. Kai Chung has a letter here and he says, range calculator. Mel, you talked about a range calculator. Couldn't find it on the website. Well, actually, what you do, Kai, is you go to, say, the Model S or the Model X and you just click on sort of uh, order or configure. Or Actually, you don't even have to go that far. You just click on uh, that and it starts to tell you about the car. And if you just scroll down on that first page telling you about the car, it's really great. It's really great. Then there is a range configurer there and uh, you can work out speed. Um, air conditioning, uh, what size wheels, and get your estimated range. Um, and it's fun to play with. I do it every night. David Sell is uh, asked the question, which I think is really interesting. We talked about on the last episode or the episode before the last episode about regenerative cruising, coming down a hill and putting energy back into your battery. And this Road and Trek article asked the question, if you've got a base model 60, how big a hill would you have to have to fill that completely up with energy just by regenerative cruising? And the answer was a hill about twice the size of Mount Everest. Just so you know, if you're on the top of Mount Everest, you're going to get a significant amount of regenerative energy, but you're going to need two of those hills to fill up a Model 60. Don't know if it's accurate, but it's interesting, funny. Thank you very much, David. Thomas Pendergast, is that right? I think I've like done three of these in a row that it might says be good. Prender. Prender. Oh, I got one Prender guess. Damn. He says that there is a Maori myth about North and South Islands of New Zealand and how they arose from this demigod that sort of pulled them out of the water and then there was a fight about them and uh, the fish got cut in half and that was the North and South Island. And it is remarkably similar to what you were telling us, Tom, about the Hawaiian Islands. And I guess this is just sort of the Polynesian how you make islands story. Yeah, this is like the Polynesian mythology. So very, very interesting. Uh, so we, we've, we've 
we've learned something that it's not just the myth of the Hawaiian Islands, but most of the Polynesian uh, cultures have this same god. Maui. I wonder what the I wonder what the myth is on Easter Island because they were like or the Pitcairns where they're some of the most isolated of the Polynesian islands. I wonder how their myths diverge. I find the Polynesian finding of New Zealand and stuff fascinating. They got there to New Zealand 500 years, it's estimated, before Europeans. Was this just a drunken excursion of a couple of the guys that were out rowing and like they just like got lost and blown away? Or did they go, let's paddle as far as we can that way and find a new place to live? What was going on in their heads? Yeah, how the hell did they find <laughs> these little tiny these islands that are really quite small as far as the Pacific Ocean, the Southern Pacific Ocean is concerned? How do they find these islands and like go back and forth? It's just amazing. I mean, if you read uh, the book Collapse, it goes into amazing Jared Diamond's book Collapse. Totally recommend it. Um, the story about Easter Island and how the Polynesians migrated across the Pacific fascinating. I love this stuff. Michael Sullivan has a letter here that says, Mel, you're an ignorant slut. I travel overseas all the time. You go overseas, you put in a cheap SIM and you can get a lot of data. And he gives us some, um, uh, a number of people have actually said the same thing. And actually even uh, Cece said, Mel, you're an ignorant slut. When you go to Australia, New Zealand, you just go get a cheap SIM card. So I haven't done this for a while because the last time I did it, it was a big old thing. It was very expensive and they couldn't make it fit. I do have a T-Mobile, which is a, what a number of people have suggested. So if you get T-Mobile here in the U.S., when you go overseas, you have data roaming, which doesn't cost any more. But it is 2G data roaming. It is good for email and that's about it. It's useless. So next time I go to Australia, New Zealand, Europe, uh, Chile, I will try again and shove a new SIM in my iPhone and see what happens. But I read that AT&T is shutting down its 2G network in the United States. Will that make it worse? Uh, it couldn't be any worse than it is right now. Here <laughs> we have David Weinberg. And uh, he says, look, I'm an ER doc outside of Pittsburgh, and I just finished my residency in June. I listen to your show religiously. And he talks about a lot of things, which is all very interesting. But here's what uh, really disturbs me about this. <laughs> Mel and Tom, quit arguing about who the smart one in. Obviously... It's Robert. And I say to you, sir, just because I can't pronounce things, just because I don't know how to park, and just because I don't know how to put a SIM into an iPhone doesn't mean I'm not smart. Okay? Yeah, but the, the interesting thing about this letter is he talks about all this stuff, EV charging and all this other stuff, and then at the very end, he just throws that sentence in with no evidence to support his conclusion, zero whatsoever. So, I mean, what's he basing this on? Clearly, just – his love of Robert, I guess. I think more that than uh, it shows reality. his brilliance. It shows his brilliance because does it because he got under both of your skins. You read his <laughs> letter. <laughs> yes, it worked. <laughs> Rob Simmons true. has a uh, a letter here, and a number of letters came in saying the same thing that Tom's rant, which was a little uncomfortable. Let's be honest. Tom went off on us because uh, somebody said Tom just shut up and decide which car you're going to buy, and Tom gave a very eloquent but very angry dissertation on why it's really hard to decide what EV to get. And Rob Simmons says the same thing. Good on you, Tom. Uh, Tom uh, Rob was very happy with you. James Malt says, uh, I've been listening to Mel about uh, ranting about roaming charges and you're an idiot. If you uh, come to Great Britain, you can get a SIM card for £15 a month and it'll work in like 42 different countries, including New Zealand and the USA. So you are stupid. That's great. How about we stop being this week and who the f*** gives a shit about cheap data? <laughs> I care about data roaming. 
almost as much as I care about driving electric. Almost. No, you're not even close. That's ridiculous. Oh, man. When you're overseas and you don't have good data, you realize how addicted you are to the internet. I start to right, get But the you don't have a and... show about this week in international data. Well, plans. it's you interesting you should say that we are about to start a show called This Week <laughs> in International Data. Roaming. Oh, that's going to be, it's be gonna super be great. Super Marty Minahan uh, is from New Zealand. And he said, hang on, boys. Minahan. 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 Oh, my bad. And Marty says, there is, in fact, quite a few EVs in New Zealand now, and the uh, infrastructure for charging is um, growing all the time. He says there's 200 new EVs being registered every month in New Zealand. There's 45 Teslas in New Zealand. It's awesome. interesting that after I left Auckland and I didn't see any electric cars, that Cece sent me a picture and she saw a blue Model S flying through the streets of Auckland. So they do exist. They are getting faster and better, and so uh, good on you, mate. And he said, next time I'm down in New Zealand, we should hook up, but he only just started listening to the show. We should have a contest. Who can beat California? Or who can beat Southern California? Or West Los Angeles? Yeah, let's have a contest. Who's got the most EVs this week? Now, Jordy, and he's done it phonetically, and I'm still going to get it wrong. You nailed it. You did it wrong. Jordy (laughs) Servenra. No. No? Did I still get it wrong? Jordy Servenra. Ve, Vera, whatever. Like vain. I just finished listening to the last episode, the shit ton one, and I just wanted to thank you guys for awesome content. Mel, don't stop using the Z that is new, and could you add the germ that is many? And this is suggested to piss off the Germans, and I'm sure it will. So uh, he uh, also goes on and talks about how much energy is required to make energy. And it's a little bit complicated, and I'm not sure it's correct because I've heard different numbers, but it basically says in order to get uh, fuel out of the ground, you have to put in like one unit of energy, but you get 15 units back. And solar cells might be one unit of energy to create it, and you only get three or four times as much as back. But the real point there, I think uh, Robert has suggested, it doesn't count for the fact that the energy you get out of your solar panel is clean. The energy you get out of your oil is very dirty, so it might be true. But it's not that important. The cost of all the downstream problems that are created well, I, by burning stuff. Right. But I think his question was or his situation was how much of the traditional energy goes into producing a solar panel, right? Like are they using fossil fuels to transport whatever it is they're making the raw materials out of? That I, I think it's – that's sort of what he was getting. Yeah. I've, list, I've read a number of these and we can go into it more detail in the weeks ahead. But I have – Heard and because you hear this on Fox News and other places all the time. Well, it takes uh, the energy playback is uh, the rest of the solar panels' life. And the last one I read said no. With current uh, technology, the payback period is about nine months for your average solar panel. That's all of the energy required to dig up this stuff and transport it. And they keep quoting how much it was for the first generation of solar panels that went on the White House, which were incredibly inefficient. And the payback period was 40 years. Now it's like nine months. But I'll go into more detail. You should do the next letter, Robert. This letter is from Jiwans. Sounds like wagon. So Gwans. Gwans? See, I'm not the only one who can't pronounce things. I think it's Gwagan. Wagon. Oh, I got you now. I didn't get the G-O-N part, but it's G-A-N-S. Wagons. Anyway, he shows us a uh, website called Chargerville.com when we were talking about how it would be great if there was more in-depth information about what to do, what to see when you get to a supercharger. You're there, you're stuck for 40 minutes or however long, depending on how much you need and so forth. And what could you go around and explore? Um it's it's an okay site. I mean, I kind of looked at it for a couple of of uh, locations, and 
mm, it's it's okay. It's not what I'm looking for. What would really be cool is if we set up at every supercharger station a bit of a scavenger hunt, right? Have you ever traveled with small kids? Oh, yeah. Kids who, like, they can't sit still. Once you get back in the car, how long till we're going to be there? So for all the young people uh, who have kids, maybe some old people have kids too, but and uh, they want to give their kids something to do, each supercharger site should have some sort of a scavenger hunt that doesn't get the kids killed running around with cars zipping by. That would be really cool too. Yeah, there's this thing called GeoK which if you haven't done is a lot of fun uh, you get this app and it tells you there's a little secret uh, message over here and you go and try and find it and you open it up and you sign it and you say I found that little secret miss geocaching at every single supercharger would be cool that'd be a cool I have project a, I actually have a geocache my son and I did it when he was little and uh, maybe my next one is going to be at a supercharger and it'll be a bottle of oil it'll be really weird uh, Jason Clawson <laughs> is another person that was just absolutely excited about Tom ripping us all a new one because of his difficulty in deciding which car. He was very excited, but much more important than that, he also talked about launching little model rockets, and he goes, you can get away with this, but there's one in particular, I think it's an E-engine. He said, put an E-engine on these little rockets because it's really fun because about one every three times they explode, and so put your <laughs> iPhone next to it on slow-mo and watch it undergo rapid, unexpected disassembly, disassemblination or whatever it is, the rut. So this is now my plan, is to let it launch a couple of times, maybe with the low-powered C or D batteries, and then throw an E in that bad boy and see what happens. And, and be sure to wear – If I do it, I will get it on film. Be sure to wear your eye protection. That's always on all the packaging. J.D. Kaplan says, uh, you need to know that the Netherlands now runs all of its trains on renewable wind energy. That's pretty cool. And uh, it means that the Dutch are really smart, like, because they're from Dutchland. No. No, not really? No. No? No. Okay, Bill Pollard. You had a chance. You had a chance. Bill Pollard says, uh, the most impactful ton. Okay, so... We thought we had four tons. We thought for a long time we had three, <laughs> but now we have five. So you've got your shit ton, which everybody accepts is the biggest of the tons. Then you've yeah. got your long ton, your short ton, your metric ton, and now we have to add to it the washing ton. <laughs> oh, that is so pathetic. Which may turn out to be the shittiest ton of all. <laughs> yeah, that's sort of like a redundant statement, wouldn't it be? Yes. Robert uh, Bingham who uh, went with you, right? That's right. Up to uh, see the flight. Shares with us a video about uh, some pretty cool um, aviation simulation aircraft, which is a little bit like the simulation Tesla that you had that could be a 60 or it could be a 100 or it could be a P this. or Right. So uh, this type of simulating has been done before. Thank you, Robert. This video is amazing. I didn't even realize they were doing this sort of stuff. And it's funny in the video, you watch it and you see this unreal modification of a jet engine. Basically, this jet can fly almost pointing straight the nose pointing straight up in the sky yet it's moving forward and the you know in during the video they're like, well and the funding was cut for this program it's like why this is like the coolest thing i have ever seen what the hell's going on who's paying for this and why aren't we choosing why you know why can't we have like uh go fund me it's right. where we all decide what should our government spend if you're gonna make a on. jet make this jet make it's a jet cool. that does really cool shit it actually goes backwards so it can tip up like you were saying it can tip the front of the nose up and then they can tip it up even further so for a little while it can actually go backwards and you can imagine a firefight somebody coming behind you and you've got the super special jet and it tips up and it, then it's behind you and it's shooting you. oh top gun all over again mr anderson in this case 
Brian Anderson, has a uh, letter here which is a big uh, thumbs up for the longest show ever. He thought that was uh, pretty cool. And then he's got some stuff about climate deniers. And he suggests that we use a different term. And where is it? I can't find it. I should have highlighted it. He says he's going to drop the... He's going to drop the word believe in connection to climate change and replace it with understand. It ain't a religion. It's science. Thank you. Yeah. And saying, do you believe in climate change? Do you understand climate change? Brian, be careful. Don't give us two thumbs up on this show because it's going to be yet longer because I don't want you to crash your car. Autopilot's <laughs> it, not there yet. He, he also complained that we're not getting our show notes up soon enough and we will work very diligently to try to do that faster than we are currently doing it. CC, yeah. that one's for you. Get those up. They need them immediately. We don't care that you're on your honeymoon. Yeah, forget that. Forget, don't worry about it. We work all the time, all the time. It's Martin Luther King Day. We should be hanging out and celebrating <laughs> Martin Luther King. And here we are talking talking Tesla. We thought it was the best way that we could uh, actually um, celebrate together was to be doing a talking Tesla. He also says that he's got the full Carl Sagan little blue dot thing on his uh, webpage, and he indeed does. Doug Ingram um, says, here is how you pronounce Obeche. And can somebody now please pronounce it correctly? Go. Obichi. So it's not Obeche, it's Obichi. Obichi. All right. Clearly, well, we cannot do anything right on this show. It's a lovely, it's a lovely dash, but unfortunately, no longer available. And by the way, Cece is the smartest. John from Colorado says this. <laughs> Future Faraday reservations, you were wrong, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. I can't believe that we were wrong. He said that those 64,000 reservations were not $5,000 each for the Future Faraday. They were for free. You could just reserve one. And some people, if they wanted to get to the front of the line, would have to pay $5,000. But we have no idea how many of those people actually dropped the $5,000 in the cash. Yeah, we missed that one big time. Thanks, John. Christian, uh, what's his name? Lewis. Christian Lewis said the last uh, very, very long podcast was the best. What do you mean? You're trying to get us to do even longer ones? <laughs> Remanufactured batteries is what David Sell wants to talk about. And uh, and uh, he had a nice adventure. And, he went uh, on eBay <laughs> trying to find uh, a replacement battery for his old 2004 Honda Civic Hybrid, and the dealer wanted an ungodly amount of money. And, and basically, this just begs the, the story of how are we going to approach replacing the battery on all of these cars that, you know, the batteries are, they don't have the duration, right? These are the non-cooled, non-warmed batteries, or they don't have the same uh, tolerance for temperature variation, and they go bad faster. This is where I'm hoping that the Tesla... Uh, 2170 cells will be available for other people to pack into batteries in a secondary market and keep all these cars rolling. Because, you know, really that is the Tesla um, motto is to increase non-carbon transportation. Aaron Schneider has a letter here that basically talks about a movie with Kevin Costner called Criminal. And in there is a Model S, I assume. Or an X. He said Falcon Wing Doors. Falcon Wing Doors. And unfortunately in this movie, which is apparently pretty bad. Yeah, Rotten Tomatoes, 30%. They uh, give it sort of V8 um, sound effects as it's driving around, which is kind of silly. It's the whole point. It doesn't make a sound. Yeah, I watched the <laughs> coming attraction. It's kind of a cool premise. I look forward to looking at it. Maybe it'll be sort of like uh, uh, Passengers, the movie where, you know, they got really crappy Rotten Tomato reviews, but I thought it was a great premise. I think it'll be a, 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 a classic. And then finally, Andrew Cameron, somebody do this, and it's about grokking Tom. 
Yes, it's when I told Tom that I grok him, and that comes from a book. I, it's escaping my my mind right now, but that it's like I really know stranger you. in a strange stranger land. in a strange land. I know you. I get you. I feel like I'm one with you in understanding. And he uh, he then talks about how he gets Tom's angst over how to to move uh, towards driving again. Uh, we're going to plot in an interview now. This is a really interesting interview about sort of how you can get community solar. And so uh, we will share that right after we sign off because it's a really interesting interview and it's a company that's up and running now. And I'm actually going to try it out and I'll uh, tell you more about it. I also want to thank you all for listening to the show. The show has really grown in popularity. We are now a top 10 tech podcast in the world, which Whoa. is uh, pretty astounding given the low quality of my associates. <laughs> Um, <laughs> uh, hey, hey, F off, buddy. Whatever. So I really want to thank you for listening. For those of you that are uh, Patreoning us, and uh, we hope to announce some sort of better and new things that we can do on Talking Tesla in the months and years ahead, because it's going to start to get pretty exciting as we get closer and closer and closer to Model 3 launch. I, I actually couldn't believe you when you're telling me that we would actually get up high on the podcast popularity scale. And then I actually got a tweet from a listener who saw a picture of my car at the Barstow Supercharger, because I always try and take a picture that shows sort of the Talking Tesla podcast sticker that we have on our cars, or maybe you don't now. But I have to order some more. I got yeah. some coming. So he said he really wanted a Talking Tesla podcast sticker for his car. And I thought, this dude is insane. Where am I getting this from? Is this a troll from... But no, (laughs) it turns out it was a guy who's been, you know, tweeting back and forth with me and the EV community. And I thought, wow, maybe we really have arrived. Wow, I'm so so excited. And it's all about you and it's all about your letters because we're idiots. You're smart. Your letters are great. Keep them coming. My name is Mel Herbert. His name is Robert Rosenblum. That guy over there is in Chicago via the Skype, which is why... Let's be honest, it wasn't as funny or as angry because you can't get the funny angry Tom unless he's in person. Are you going to be back with us next week, Tom? I will be back in town next week. Will you be both funny and angry? I will try to be funny. Uh, and you know, You'll definitely I, be angry. I can pretty much guarantee I'll be angry at one of you bitches. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Talking Tech the 69. And now, an interview. So our interview is with Joel Garmaran. Now, Joel works for Arcadia Solar, and he's going to explain the very complicated process by which you, who can't get solar on your house, can get solar by giving them some money. They'll build it somewhere else, and then they'll help pay off your electricity bill. It's complicated. Here's Joel. You know, the, the way we kind of look at this problem is, you know, you've got over a billion energy bills being paid in America every year, okay. and you have you know, very limited choice for the majority of consumers. Um, You know, our electricity system really hasn't changed in the past hundred years. And, you know, what you're starting to see, as you kind of alluded to, you know, you have some customers who want to support clean energy and um, are kind of starting to take matters into their own hands by installing solar on their own roof. But unfortunately, that's not an option for most consumers. You know, the research kind of varies, but you'll see that anywhere from like 75 to 90 percent of customers cannot put solar on their own roof. I don't know how familiar your listeners are with the reasons behind that, but there's, you know, shading, maybe there's trees around your house, maybe your roof faces the wrong direction, financial constraints. Uh, You don't live in the right state. You know, if you live in a state where grid electricity is really cheap, it probably doesn't make sense to install solar. And so there are all these kind of reasons. And so Arcadia has developed a software 
that lets you kind of tap into solar installed elsewhere and generate savings off your bills over time by kind of directing some of your energy spend towards solar. So we've developed a national community solar program that we call the Portable Panel. And so the way it works is that you purchase some kind of share of a solar energy system in the form of a subscription. So you're actually paying upfront. That money goes towards the development of a solar project. And we specifically cite those solar projects in locations where the economics of solar are very good. You know, it's on an open field with plenty of sun or a flat roof or a a south-facing roof where it's going to get a lot of sun. And it's in an area where the electricity being generated is very valuable. And so it's actually generating, you know, kind of a stream of financial value with every kilowatt hour of solar it produces. So by purchasing your share, what you're essentially entitled to is a share of that, you know, electricity value being created in the form of savings on your electric bill over time. And what makes this all possible is the proprietary software that Arcadia Power developed. So just touching on community solar, since you know, that might be something that some of your listeners are already familiar with. There are kind of a handful of states um, and utilities that have kind of launched uh, what they're calling community solar programs, where you can kind of subscribe to a local solar array and the utility will actually reduce your bill based on how much electricity is being produced. But these programs are really limited. They're extremely geographically limited. You have to you know, live within the same service area as that utility. And often there are kind of many other restrictions on who can participate, how long the contracts are, all these sorts of things. So, you know, we know that customers don't want to wait for, you know, the local utility in their town to kind of develop these programs. So that's why we were motivated to to build this software platform that actually enables Arcadia Power to take the value of electricity being produced at one of our sites and actually send that value directly to your utility bill. So we're not changing your relationship with your local utility in the sense that you're still physically consuming electricity off your local grid, but you have contributed to this development of a, of a new solar system. So you are contributing kind of in the overall electricity grid to more solar um, energy being delivered into the, into the electric grid. And as it generates electricity, we take the value of that electricity and we actually directly credit that to your local bill. And so that's something unique about our technology to be able to do that. And so I'm in Los Angeles and I've got the Department of Water and Power, one of my places here. And so you basically get my account information Mm -hmm. and say, well, Mel generated $200 worth of solar electricity over here. Yeah. And you basically pay that $200 to my account. Exactly right. And so you'll see... You know, as the solar system is generating electricity, the value for that will actually directly offset what you owe your local utility company. One of the other cool things about what we built is you're actually able to track in real time, you know, exactly how much your solar energy system is producing um, or your share of that system is producing rather. And so you can kind of see the production of the system accumulating and your savings accumulating. And then you can see that, you know, offsetting uh, your local energy charges. So many questions. Um, why would my utility bother dealing with you? Like, you're going to come and save the world. I don't care. I want to sell electricity to these people make a profit. Why would they even interface right. with you? One of the cool things about our software is, you know, we've really developed this over the past several years. One of the kind of challenges to building this system is being able to kind of integrate with all these different 
utility billing systems. And so it really, it was a, a technical challenge more than kind of a business development challenge of actually, you know, designing the software to work with each different utilities system. You know, there are a number of companies out there that can kind of read in electricity consumption data from, you know, some small selection of utilities. But we've actually been able to do that across hundreds of utilities across the entire country. And on top of that, do it in a way that's accurate and reliable enough to actually base billing information on our technology that we've built. And then I think the other thing is that, you know, there are some utilities that actually really do kind of appreciate what we're doing. If you look over the past, you know, five years or so, you'll see across the country, you know, utilities are, are popping up with these new titles like customer innovation officer and, you know, other kind of positions like that. And I think utilities do like the idea that, you know, there are kind of more choices for their customers, you know, even if the utility can't offer that directly. Is there any outside of that, any direct financial incentive to them? Do you say, oh, I will give you a one cent extra per kilowatt hour or something like that to them? Currently, no. I think there is potentially kind of an administrative benefit to them um, because when we are doing this credit mechanism, you know, especially as compares to some of the utility run community solar programs, there's much less burden on the utility to kind of update their billing system, figure out how to, you know, read solar meters and distribute that to hundreds of individual customer meters. We kind of centralize all this for the utility. And we also reduce, you know, the number of individual kind of banking transactions they need to deal with because we can kind of centralize things. So there are some uh, administrative benefits that, you know, I think if they did some kind of analysis, there would probably be some financial savings there. But I don't think that's kind of the key value. Yeah. So I'm a great example of why they might want to retain me. So I want to have 100% renewable in my house, in my studio. I can't really do it. I've got lots of solar panels, but I need more. So I'm either going to build more solar panels myself and come completely off grid and get a Tesla Powerwall, right. or I'm going to come to somebody like you, just make it easy for me. Here's my information. Go uh, chuck some panels up. That'll be more efficient. They'll actually keep me as a customer and I'll be able to offset my use. So I get that. That's a great point. Yeah, I think with the way our system works, you know, the utility is kind of a critical part of the equation because you still are getting all your power delivered through their grid. So now tell me financially how this works. Do I say, look, I want to buy $10,000 worth of solar panels because I think that's enough to keep me 100% replacement or do I lease them? How does that work? So it is, uh, it is a, a subscription model, but it's prepaid. And the reason for that is you know, we actually are using your upfront payment to go out and develop the solar system that will generate savings over time. And in terms of, you know, how much is it going to cost you? I think one of the other kind of really cool things about our program is it's completely modular. It's flexible to kind of the individual situation. So we've tried to bring the entry point down to a place where just about anyone who pays an electric bill can afford to participate. So you could just buy one $300 panel share, or you could go up to kind of fully offset, you know, your annual electricity spend every year. And, and if you wanted to do that, you probably would be looking at more like a ten dollars to $15,000 purchase, you know, more in line with if you were installing solar on your own house and paying for a full system. So it's totally modular. You know, we've had a bunch of customers who wanted to just kind of try it out, start with, you know, four or five panels, and then um, as they started to see the credits on their bill, they came back and, and topped off all of their load. So it's it's really can kind of vary. So do I pay annually or do I pay over five years, 10 years? Currently, it's a, it's a one-time upfront fee. And then that will cover your subscription for you know, the, the term, which 
you know, we have a number of different projects available at any given time. And the terms could range from 10 years up to 20 years, kind of just depending on the specific system and our deal with the property owner and things like that. So you're, but you are paying that full upfront cost, which then goes towards developing the project. And is there a sort of a price per kilowatt hour that is standard or does it depend on who I'm getting my electricity from now? Does not depend on who you're getting your electricity from now. So it actually depends on where the system is installed and kind of the economics of solar in that local region, um, feeding that local grid. So with the projects we've done to date, it's typically, you know, it's ranged from kind of like 10 to 20 cents per kilowatt hour in terms of a credit value that you're getting back on your bill. So you got to think about it kind of in reverse. Your local utility is continuing to charge you the same rate that it always has. But as your solar system or your solar subscription produces electricity, each of those kilowatt hours is then sending kind of a negative dollar amount back to your bill. Did you follow me there? I think so. So it doesn't that mean that it only works in my favor if I'm doing it for financial reasons? It only works in my favor if I can buy the electricity off you for less or the same than I can buy it off my utility here? No. So we have our pricing set up so that you're always going to be saving. So basically, let's say you bought in for you know $1,000. That might generate something like $1,500 in savings for you over the 20 years. Mm-hmm. How it relates to your local electricity cost is more related to just you know how many panels do you actually need to purchase to offset your local bill. If your local electricity is very cheap, but the electricity where our system installed is more valuable, then you know you might actually not need as many kilowatt hours of solar to offset your full local bill. And you're making your money out of some differential between what I'm buying for it and what you're selling it to uh, the utility wherever you're hooked into. Exactly, that's right. So you know, kind of like you know, Uber, Airbnb, they're taking kind of a commission off commission. of each sale. You know, we're doing the same. So. The place where you would want to be putting your panels then is places where they don't have much solar but it would, and the electricity is expensive. So maybe Hawaii, they're paying 30, 40 cents per right. kilowatt hour. It's like, oh, we've got a million bucks here. We're going to go set up a solar farm. Is that kind of how the economics works for you guys? Exactly. So, you know, anywhere that kind of the economics of solar, you know, are, are sound, our systems can make a lot of sense. We, you know, we're looking for places where we can kind of get the most bang for our buck in terms of you know, where to install solar across the states. Now, let's say, okay, I'm going to do this and I want to give you $10,000. I want you to buy lots of panels. Mm-hmm. What happens if you go broke next year? What happens to poor me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the, the system will continue um, generating electricity and it will continue generating value for that electricity. The most likely thing that would have happened is, you know, some other entity would have, you know, purchased the asset from us and their obligation to continue crediting you um, would remain intact. So, you know, I can't really speculate on what would happen, but I think that's probably the most likely. Do you own the solar generating plants yourself or you are just investing in company X is about to build a giant, you know, array and you're going to sort of invest in them? We always have a direct kind of ownership of electricity production. It can vary kind of who actually owns the hardware. Um, in some cases, it's us. In some cases, it's actually the property owner. But we've kind of created a transaction with them where we've helped to finance the system in exchange for you know a share of or the rights to the, the power production. Are these all utility scale installations or do you go to Joe Blow with a big roof and say, yeah, we can uh, hook you up? Yeah, it's a, it's a wide range. We, we've tried to kind of fill some of the gaps where solar installations have historically been difficult to finance. So 
a lot of that is actually in the smaller commercial sector. So some commercial buildings, some nonprofits, um, churches, for example, and then we even have a couple of residential projects that we've done. So, you know, wide range down from um, residential all the way up to, you know, large scale commercial projects. So you've been around three years, you're in Washington. How big a company are you at this point? Yeah, we are currently 21 employees and we've been continuing to grow, actively looking for engineers and customer experience team members. And what's your revenues? Are you allowed to tell us that? Uh, I don't know if I'm allowed <laughs> to disclose that. <laughs> Dang. Yeah. Boy, uh, still- I, I, can t- I can tell you, though, that we are venture-backed um, and we recently announced that we raised $3.5 million um, in venture funding. So that should give you kind of some idea of the, the stage of the company. Anybody else like you? I mean, Community Solar exists, but you're a tech company. I think I understand that part. Right. Is anybody else with tech like yours? I think we're really unique in um, having developed this billing system that can kind of cross utility and state boundaries. So, you know, like I mentioned, there are some other companies out there that can kind of connect into a selection of utility consumption data. There are a number of companies that are out there kind of building these local community solar projects. I think what's you know totally unique about what we're doing is the ability to kind of cross these state and utility boundaries and provide bill credits, you know, from one area to customers of, you know, disparate utilities across the country. How granular does this get? Do like if I say go buy I'm gonna buy five panels. Yeah. Can I actually go visit my five panels or is it more you're buying X thousands of dollars worth of panels and it's kind of going to be over here, but there's no little panel with my name on it and the numbers I'm getting are not actually the generation from my five panels. I'll be like, some bird took a shit on my panel and (laughs) it's not making as much energy as it should. Right. So it's kind of somewhere in between those two extremes, but it's actually much closer to the very granular, very specific, you know, these are your panels. Um, And what I mean by that is you will be receiving bill credits based on the actual electricity production of a specific solar system. We don't actually go down to the individual panel level because just the way solar production works, you know, all of the electricity is actually going through um, an inverter, which, you know, because you're a a solar system owner. But basically, we take, you know, let's say you have five panels out of a 100 panel system, you would actually be receiving credit for 5% of that specific system's output. And so that's how we enable you to to track, you know, your specific production. It's not five physical panels, but it's 5% or you know, whatever percentage um, you've subscribed to of that system. And how have people been responding to this? Part of owning solar panels and generating your own electricity is that I can go outside and I look at my panels and it's a bright day and I look at my inverter and I'm like, damn, I'm making some good energy right now. (laughs) And I'm selling it back to the grid and I have a warm feeling inside. Do people have that same sort of gut feeling when they open your little app and they see the little spiking like, yay, I'm making (laughs) kilowatts? Yeah, I think so. We've had really good response to the to the monitoring, to the dashboard. I think we've done everything we can to make it, you know, as similar as possible an experience to having your own system. I think, you know, being able to track that is a big part of it. And I think people actually like that they don't have to deal with, you know, any maintenance issues or, you know, ensuring that the panels are, are operating over time. I think people like, you know, kind of having the peace of mind that there's a company, you know, kind of dedicated to, to doing that. Um, but that they can still receive the benefits of, of these panels and, and track the production and so on. Let's say your company becomes a $500 billion company. Yahoo! Right. Will this, if you're very successful or people like you are very successful, will this accelerate the growth of renewables? I'm at DWP. I think they use 20 or 30% renewables. I'm like, come on, boys, let's get busy. Let's get up to 100. Right. Will investing in somebody like your company 
uh, push that needle forward because that's what a lot of us want to do. Let's push the needle forward by yep. taking money from the oil and gas industry or from a coal-powered plant. And right. Let's stick it to somebody who's going to do something renewable. Right. That's really our goal as well. You know, by leveraging all of these, you know, energy bills across the country and, and enabling people to kind of direct their spend towards a solar project, I think we are actually creating, you know, new distributed energy resources and specifically new, you know, distributed solar systems that would otherwise not ever get built. And, you know, every time you're kind of putting more renewables onto the grid, the electricity grid needs to stay in balance. And so that just kind of by definition means that there's less of a need for traditional fossil fuel generation. I think, you know, we still obviously have a really long way to go. I think we're at about 1% solar right now. You know, if you just want to look at some numbers, you know, if, if we took everyone's energy spend for an entire year and dedicated that towards building new solar capacity, I think, you know, you could probably generate about 10% of our energy needs through that, you know, which is one year of, of energy bills. So I think there's huge potential for this to kind of lead to additional you know, growth in, in solar installations and displace some of the more traditional and, and harmful uh, energy sources that we've been relying on. Let's go back and again try and make it more concrete for me because I'm a slow learner. I don't understand. <laughs> Let's say again, I've got a $200 a month bill. So I go to you guys and say, I want you to completely offset this for the next five years. Yeah. Do you basically give me a, well, here's the cost per kilowatt hour. Here's how many panels you're going to buy. And let's say it's 15 cents a kilowatt hour right now I'm paying. Do we do the transaction like that and then it's fixed at 15 cents and I'm done? I just pay that up front. And so if my DWP says, well, next year it's 30 cents a kilowatt hour, right. do I still have to end up paying more? How does that work? Yeah. So your purchase of solar through us will generate savings over time. Uh, you're going to know, you know our estimate for how much future electricity costs that's going to offset. So the example I gave before was, you know, let's just keep it simple. Let's say you spend 1000 with us you're going to get that 1500 or so off your bill over the next 20 years. If your local utility raises their rates, then the fit, you're still going to be saving that 1500 through um, through Arcadia, but it won't necessarily bring your bill down to zero if, you know, kind of the the remainder that your local utility charges is going up. Got it. So now do you have a formula so I want to buy 5 years, 10 years, 15 years, you're going to guarantee 1000 plus 5%, 1000 plus 10%, 1000 plus 30%? Is there some formula you do like that? It is actually based on the individual project's solar forecast and we do try to be, you know, pretty conservative, so you know, we want we want to kind of underpromise, overdeliver. We don't currently have a, a guarantee built in. But, you know, we have very um, kind of skilled people here doing the forecasts. And there's, you know, always, you know, 10 plus years of historical data that you can go to from the Department of Energy to kind of build out these models. And so we try to be um, pretty conservative in our estimates of how much you're actually going to receive. This is fascinating to me. I'm actually going to sign up for it in the next few days. Awesome. So that I can then report on how this works. I think it's a fascinating idea. Thank you for your time for doing this. And uh, we will direct our people to go and... Uh, sign up with you. Where do they go? Fantastic. They can go to www.arcadiapower.com slash solar or just arcadiapower.com and look for the solar button on the top menu. Oh, actually, one thing I had to ask you is, yes. are you pure solar or are you wind? Are you geothermal? Uh, what are you doing? Yeah, great question. So we have uh, a number of products. Actually, the first product that we launched when we started the company a few years ago was a wind-based product. That one works a little bit differently than solar. So the way it works is that we actually buy 
renewable energy certificates matched to your grid usage. And so renewable energy certificates are basically the EPA's way of kind of legally defining a, a green kilowatt hour. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're basically buying these certificates on your behalf matched with your consumption. And you can choose to do 50% renewable energy for free or 100% renewable energy for a small premium. Fantastic. All right. Thanks again. And uh, I will be in touch. That was great. Thanks for your time. Great. Mel, it was a pleasure. I really appreciate it. It was cool. So interesting. Good luck. Thanks. Thanks. I'll start listening to the Talking Tesla. Oh, it's it's a ridiculous show. You'll love it. (laughs) Fantastic. Talking Tesla is a production of Fully Blue Incorporated. Produced by Mel Herbert and C.C. Herbert. Hosted by Mel Herbert, Tom Wolfson, and Robert Rosenblum. To support Talking Tesla, go to patreon.com forward slash talking Tesla. If you love the show, write us a review on iTunes.